You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 503. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jack, broadcasting live from Studio 3E at the Westin Hotel in Jackson, Mississippi. Today's show is recorded on the 30th of December, 2021. In today's episode, a paraglider dies after colliding with a small plane in Texas. All nine people aboard a chartered jet die in a crash minutes after takeoff from the Dominican Republic. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 503 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins in New York City! Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, GA, and joining me from her lakeside studio in South... Dr. Skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated backstabbing jumper dumper, it's Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Good to see you guys. Happy almost New Year. It's New Year's Eve Eve, I suppose. But uh, more importantly than that, going to be a great show and we're looking forward to it. All right. And also joining us, no... He's not. I don't know where the heck that guy is. Um, well, we'll talk about that a little bit uh, later. But here we go uh, from his studio in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. Well, hello there, everybody from your favorite retard. Um, it's uh, the end of 2021, and I personally am be happy to see it go. Also joining us today from her studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer director, it's Liz Piper. Hi, everybody. Happy All right. 2022. Almost, almost. Almost. Last recorded uh, live recording in 2021, and if you're listening to our audio podcast, you're probably saying, no, it's the first podcast on my podcast player for 2022. So we're going to straddle the fence with that one. And speaking of straddling fences and, you know, being all over the place with our news analysis and opinion, let's do some news.
stand by for news. Hey, what do you think we start off with this news item? Uh, Cess- uh, mid-air collision between a Cessna 208B Super Cargo Master, November 1116, November, uh, and a powered parachute or a paraglider, I think it's also called, uh, crashed near Fulshear, Texas, killing the pilot that's in the, uh, in the Houston area. The caravan, uh, 208B, Super Cargo Master. I guess it's not a, really a caravan then, is it? It Steph? is. It's a grand caravan. Oh. And it's got okay. a cargo pod on the bottom of it in this particular case. Pretty sure. Oh, that's why it's called a Cargo Master then. Gotcha. Anyway, uh, it took off from Houston George Bush Intercontinental Airport, Texas, on 9-10, at 9 o'clock, 10 after 9 in the morning, on a flight to Victoria Regional Airport in Texas. It uh, reached an altitude of 4,800 feet at 9-22 and remained at that altitude until it entered a sudden sharp descent at 9-25, according to ADSB data. The Fort Bend County Sheriff's Office reported that the aircraft had collided with a powered paraglider. The paraglider was found, the paraglider pilot was found dead about five kilometers south of the location where the Cessna had crashed. I have a a little uh, local news video on this incident. Let's uh, have a listen. Tonight, family members are devastated after a small plane collided with a paraglider in midair, leaving two people dead in Fort Bend County. The FAA says the small plane left Bush Airport in North Houston this morning and was headed to Victoria Regional Airport. But the crash happened just south of Fulcher. The body of one of the victims and the wreckage of the plane were found about a mile apart. Let's turn now to Matt Doherty with the latest information tonight. Matt. The FAA says both the pilot and the paraglider were killed shortly after that midair collision. It happened at about 9.40 this morning south of Fulshire, above a sparsely populated area in Fort Bend County. State troopers and Fort Bend County Sheriff's Office deputies located three different scenes with objects from the crash. One site was almost four miles from the gun range where some of the crash debris was found. It went nose first in the ground. Wyatt Scott says he was nearly killed when the plane went down. I should have died. I honestly should have died because I was 20 feet away. If I had left the house any later, I would have been dead. Neither the pilot of the single-engine Cessna nor the paraglider have been identified by authorities. Officials say the crash happened 50 miles from Bush Intercontinental Airport, where the plane departed en route to Victoria. Both the FAA and NTSB say they're investigating the mid-air collision. The agency's officials say they plan to release more details on the crash tomorrow. Near Fulcher, I'm Matt Doherty, KHOU 11 News. All right. Um, do I think we have um, a picture from from? No, we don't. It's just a video on that nope. one, don't we, nope. Liz? Okay. Uh, let yeah. me remove that from our video. Okay. So uh, the uh, Cessna Caravan or Globe Cargo Master, whatever the heck you call it, it's a um, was uh, five thousand feet approximately, and it was just outside the. Bravo airspace um, heading from intercontinental down uh, to southwest to Victoria. And the paraglider, uh, because it wasn't in Class B airspace, was perfectly legal to be flying in that airspace at that altitude. I mean, I'm, I'm not 
too familiar with uh, paragliders, uh, and I, I didn't realize they got up that high, but I was listening to something or watching something that said that uh, they can get up to like 15,000 feet or maybe even they, higher. I they guess. can definitely go go pretty high, um, whether that's a advisable thing to do or not, especially just outside mm-hmm. of a Bravo shelf. Um, I, I don't know. It's all see and avoid, um, truly, because mm-hmm. they do not have ADSB, and these outside of that... Uh, um, the ring that you need to have ADSB within if you're you're under that in or within that Bravo airspace. Um, mm-hmm. In this particular case, um, I think I had listened to some of the ATC audio on this one, and uh, the caravan I believe had wanted to climb to six thousand, but was kept at either 4,000 or 4,500. It's clearly at 4,800 uh, when this happened, um, according to the ADSB data. Um, but it was for a different traffic, um, uh, I believe, not the, the paraglider, because I don't think air traffic control would have been able to to see them at all. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, just unfortunately never got it to his requested uh, altitude for his short flight. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Nick. Yeah, I was just going to say a uh, funny old thing. Um, an old friend of mine who um, uh, has been uh, very interested in uh, buying uh, in his 70s decided that uh, he's going to be a paraglider pilot. Uh, he has a little, um, a little trolley, uh, like a shopping basket. <laughs> he, he sits in and gets airborne. Um, but funny old thing, he has decided he's going to carry and use ADSB, um, uh, you know, on his person while he's flying his paraglider because, of course, there is a, a risk. And if the other person has got it, then there's a chance they will at least be aware of his presence. You're quite vulnerable mm-hmm. in these things. Yeah, ADSB is a it's it's great for anything that's going to be in the sky. And honestly, this is something that I worry about on a regular basis because, um, uh, you know, there's uh, so we're we're under Charlotte's class Bravo, but certainly there are sometimes still folks out there below the Bravo shelf. Um, um, certainly seen um, aircraft that whether they had ADSB or not, we've not picked it up on our receiver for whatever reason. Usually quite small aircraft um, like Cubs and, and other home-builts and experimental things. Um, yeah, and, and you have to be able to see each other to avoid each other, and that's that's sometimes very, very, very difficult to do. Yeah, I, I've seen the paragliders at uh, Oshkosh when we were there in uh, 2019, and I thought, wow, that's that's probably very close to, like, really flying right um oh it's very when cool you have a stuff, motor yeah. strapped to the back of uh and, and it was unusual or interesting to me to see how they got the thing you know like the the parachute inflated by like running really really fast with this probably very heavy motor on the back with a propeller on it you know and then uh, i guess i got enough speed in the and the uh, uh the parachute is is fully deployed or whatever um, and in a shape of a wing and yeah inflated or whatever and uh then they and then they, off they go it's pretty pretty cool i think but i don't know if you'll ever find me getting in one of those i mean i think it would be a lot of fun to do i don't think i'd do it at 4800 feet and i think i would do it someplace where i was pretty sure that i was not going to be in danger of colliding with a much larger aircraft yeah 
I, I think that would worry a lot of people. You you do feel vulnerable when you're doing that. But on the other hand, it's a, it's a very accessible sport for anyone who wants to get in the air. Mm -hmm. You know, the the equipment isn't uh, um, particularly expensive. Um, you're not really very highly regulated, so you don't have to go through uh, any course at all if you want. You can just buy the kit and fly it in the UK. Uh, you're, it's recommended you go through an approved course, but uh, you don't have to. Uh, and you can get airborne if, you, if you're going to run along the ground. You can get airborne from, you know, you're almost your backyard. It's, uh, you mm -hmm. know, it inflates and elevates you so quickly. Uh, you can climb away and have great fun in it. So uh, I, I think it's a great sport. But, uh, um, you know, it, it's mixing with bigger aircraft, I think, uh, are the problem. It's not that mm -hmm. far from ideal. And... This kind of brings up the point of, you know, the we, we've mentioned it a few times already, see and avoid. And, you know, the weather was nice, and that's what we were supposed to be, you know, focusing on when we're flying, especially the lower we get to the ground. Uh, we were supposed to be clearing for traffic and everything else. And uh, I'm sure that the paraglider pilot was doing the same. However, um, they're not going very fast. They're not very maneuverable. Uh, they have the right of way uh, because of that fact, and uh, you know who knows that single pilot in the um, in the cargo master caravan was mm -hmm. probably busy doing things, maybe writing things down. I guarantee you, he looking... never saw him. Yeah, I mean, no, and I think what would you say, Steph? That uh, they hit the left wing. I think it took off. I was one. I'm trying wing. to remember if it was the right wing or the left wing, but basically from the left. aileron over, that wing was separated. Um, so a good portion yeah. of it. Yeah. Not enough left uh, wing left there for yeah. them no, or him for, to for continue control. flying. Um, to be fair, yeah. even if uh, the caravan pilot had been doing pretty good lookout, um, the relative movement you generate in a power wing is going to be small. Uh, and mm -hmm. so it's not like your peripheral vision, uh, your vision that is really acute, that picks up moving objects, will easily detect him. And obviously they're on a collision path anyway. So, uh, you know, there's going to be no relative movement and, mm -hmm. uh, at all. Uh, I mean, there's been, there's been several times where I've um, passed, like, those Mylar balloons and things. Um, you know, they're right, certainly yeah. smaller than a, a paraglider, but they're, they're also not very large and you really don't see them until it's like, Ooh, what was that right there? You know? And yep. uh, you, you, it's yep. just not in your, uh, vision in a way, like in your field of vision in a way that you can identify it or notice that it's going to be on a collision course with you potentially. Now, uh, the, the acute portion of your vision is about the size of your fist held out at arm's mm -hmm. length and, uh, the rest is peripheral. And if, if like I said, the peripheral will pick up. Uh, something moving it's very good at that because we're basically hunters um but uh, if you want to see something that's near stationary like someone you're going to collide with you've got to move that that fist of good vision around the sky so you have to scan and it's you have to be very active if you want to see everything that you're going to bump into so uh you know it is a problem and adsb is a fantastic tool so if you can afford it um then buy one please you know you could save your life so what are there any lessons learned here i mean nobody was doing anything illegal um no. what, what no. how could we have avoided this catastrophe uh very very difficult you Better know look out uh, yeah uh, yeah well i mean uh -huh. I, the you know so this kind of comes back to who's got the the right of way there you pointed out jeff the slower less maneuverable aircraft or air uh -huh. uh, you know 
in this case, the paraglider. But I think it's, you know, if I were, and I, I can't put myself in someone else's shoes and I don't do this type of activity. So maybe I'm, there's a lot of things I'm not considering about it, but I would think if I were participating in paragliding, I would be very cognizant of where I'm flying. Um, you know, what to look out for, like much farther out on the distance, the horizon, um, and probably not get up to altitudes where I'm going to be mixing with bigger traffic potentially. Yeah, so, true. I, I, um, I don't know. I don't know how else to avoid this, to be honest. No. Uh, yeah. Mark, Mark Van Ram uh, mentions uh, Tucker got YouTube channeled uh, for Paragrider glider videos and safety considerations uh i'm afraid that whilst your only uh, defense against uh, a, a mid-air collision is your lookout uh, there are going to be uh, mid-air collisions because you know our, our eyesight is never perfect uh, there could be a, a part of the airframe in the way we could be diverted our attention single pilot down to twiddle something in the box you know if someone could be coming up from behind if you're a paraglider pilot you could be hit from the backside. so mm -hmm. that's not going to help you uh, all the lookout in the world unless you can peer right behind you so it, these things sadly are going to happen mm -hmm. I, i'm with eye hall boxes every participant in this guy needs some sort of uh, system like tcas or adsb or anything along those lines both um um uh broadcasting and receiving yeah the yeah, exceptions might be actual skydivers because and it's a little tricky they can't avoid as much unless they're, un <laughs> unless they're under canopy <laughs> no. and and if if i'm not mistaken on um, once you're powered uh don't you fall into the same category as all the other powered uh flying machines under the Ultralight. rules of the air Ultralight. i think if you're a glider you you fall into a category where powered aircraft is supposed to avoid you, but I don't know. Is is there a category of uh, powered aircraft which some have priority over others? I'm not too sure. It's been a long time since Slower, I slower, less maneuverable air law exam. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, yeah, a tragedy, but uh, you know, not sure how we could have avoided that. Um, all right, uh, let's continue on with this next item, um, a Gulfstream uh, G4SP. There's a picture of it in the uh, video. Ooh, um, Santa Domingo Los, Las Americas International Airport uh, crashed. Uh, they It was destroyed when it was involved in an accident at the Santa Domingo Las Americas International Airport, which is uh, Sierra Delta, Quebec, Dominican Republic. Uh, two pilots and one flight attendant and six passengers on board, all killed. Preliminary information indicates the pilot reported an unspecified issue shortly after takeoff from Higuero, which led to the emergency diversion to Santo Domingo. I think the initial or the, um, the flight plan was to go from Higuero to uh, Miami, Florida. And something happened right off the bat and the aircraft crashed and uh liz you were showing a picture of the of the jet in the um in the video and then yes, um, the next item there is uh there was a the famous uh passenger um in santa in um yeah dominican dominican republic he's a prominent 
Puerto Rican, oh, he's a Puerto Rican music producer known as Flo La Movie, was reported to be among the dead. And uh, I think there were also, um, I think the rest of the passengers were Americans. And as I, as I said earlier, they were heading to Miami, Florida when this accident occurred. And there is the, um, uh, I think there was a flight track. There we go. Uh, showing yep, there it is. Yep. the uh, takeoff from Higuero to um, initial climb out uh, heading uh, south. And then they were circling around the city of Santo Domingo and then worked out that they uh, should continue over to uh, the Santo Domingo airport or international airport with uh, longer runways and such. But uh, that is, as far as I know, I, I don't think there is any more news about this uh, as to what hmm. may have happened. Yeah, I, I haven't seen anything else know? about this one. Okay. Oh, very good. All right. Well, if we hear more information about that, we'll certainly cover it on our show. We'll continue on with this one that happened uh, very recently, a, a Learjet 35A, uh, November 880 Zulu uh, in uh, San Diego area, Gillespie Field, uh, El Cajon, California, crashed in a residential area, killing all on board the aircraft. Aircraft was completing the turn for the final approach to runway 27 right at San Diego Gillespie Field. It struck Pepper Drive in a residential area of El Cajon, San Diego, 2.6 kilometers east of the runway threshold and burst into flames. Gillespie Tower cleared the flight to land on runway 17. Uh, then the flight contacted uh, Gillespie Tower, canceling their IFR clearance and requesting to land on runway 27 right. This was approved and the tower controller cleared the flight for a left-hand traffic pattern for runway 27 right. The flight crew then requested the runway lights to be turned up, to which the controller replied, they are at 100% now. And then shortly after wow. that, uh, the uh, Learjet Dr. Dan says it crashed. crashed two blocks from his house in San Diego. Wow. Dr. Dan in our live audience says that uh, this airplane crashed, literally crashed two blocks from my house here in Good San Lord. Diego. Mm, very close. Wow. That's wow. too close for comfort, isn't it? Yeah. So... Uh, the way I understand it, uh, the weather wasn't great. It was kind of a lowish kind low of ceiling yeah. and low overcast. And um, the visibility, I think, was right at three statute miles. So it says three it miles broken, 200 overcast, 26. Yeah. Okay. So technically, it's it's VMC, so you can you can do visual flight rules at this point. They were Sorry, flying two thousand. I think I said two hundred. I meant two thousand. Yeah. Two thousand. Yeah, that's yeah. more like it. That sounds um, <laughs> Cleared on the uh, the RNAV GPS approach to runway one seven, and then uh, and that we're looking now on the video on the left hand side is the RNAV GPS to runway one seven approach. They were coming in from uh, John Wayne, Orange County airport from the north. And so uh, I guess this was their IFR instrument uh, procedure in effect at this particular airport. And then as soon as they got below the cloud deck, I guess they saw the airport and requested that uh, the landing on 27 right. Now, 17 is about 4,200 feet long, maybe a little bit shorter. And uh, 27 right is about 5,200, 5,300 feet long. So a little bit more than 1,000 feet 
um, longer. Now, if you're in a Learjet, I, I could see, you know, wanting to land on the runway that's a little bit longer. Um, but, uh, there are some, uh, some issues involved with this particular area, um, in the San Diego area. There's a lot of high terrain and, uh, there is a note on that, uh, RNAV GPS plate that says that, uh, circling, um, to the, in that North Eastern quadrant is, um, NA not, not, um, applicable or not allowed. Yeah, Dr. Dan confirms that. And uh, Dr. Dan is confirming that. Okay, yeah, the circle to land ops are NA at night as well. So there are a couple of different notes there regarding circling approaches. However, when the Learjet pilot said they see the airport and they'd like to cancel, I think they didn't say cancel IFR. I think they said they'd like to squawk 1200, which is what you do when you cancel IFR and you go to IFR to VFR. And um, the uh, tower controller said, okay, uh, understand you're canceling. You're cleared to do the circle or the, no, he didn't say circle. He said, enter a left downwind, you know, fly over the top of the airport, fly left downwind, left base to two seven right. And so that's exactly what he did. So he was legal to do what, uh, what he was doing there. And, I think that what may have happened here is the visibility wasn't great. And uh, just as the incident or accident that we covered um, in Teterboro, um, not that long ago, a, a Learjet crashed because they were flying in. They were supposed to break out or break off and align themselves with the uh, another runway. And they got in pretty close and they really kind of racked up the uh, bank and probably the G's on the airplane and it looks to me like this has all the all the uh, telltale signs of a uh, high speed, high energy uh, stall and uh, crash. Um, the um, what was I going to say? The um, oh, I'd like to play some video from a the couple video. of yep. Nest. Uh, um, what do you, what would you call that? Surveillance camera kind of video. Doorbell. Yeah, door. Yeah, yeah the CCTV, Nest makes a doorbell and another outdoor CCTV. Yeah, closed circuit. Yeah. So uh, let's see. There's actually two here, and uh, and they're back to back. So let me play that. Here we go. Here's the first one, and you can kind of hear the airplane coming in over the top of this um, home. Looks like uh, their backyard. Kind of in a left turn, left bank, and then disappears out of frame. And then you see a very large burst of light and explosion. And uh, that was the first video. And here comes the uh, next one. Something just happened. There's a fire. A jet just crashed, babe. So we even have the audio of the folks in that uh, home that on that second one. And, yeah, very hard to analyze, yeah. but uh, just from the, the lights, it looked like the guy was overbanking 
in that mm-hmm. left-hand turn. But it's it's hard to tell. They may not have been wing lights. One may have been a tail light. So yeah, uh, that's very difficult to assess. You need to have some uh, experts, and I'm sure they will They'll take a look at all that uh, information, try and work out what happened. Uh, so I, I, I'm with you, Jeff. It, it could be they stalled. It could be they just became disorientated. Uh, because mm-hmm. it's a very difficult job when you are trying to switch your vision between looking out for the runway. They're obviously having trouble seeing it. They've asked to have the lights up, and you're mixing that with instrument flying because the visibility isn't good. You're at night, and uh, there's obviously a very poor uh, horizon. Um, so, uh, yeah, it could be it could be one, both, or either. I would say, but uh, very tragic right. all the same. Hoping they'll have all the um, information necessary. Like uh, I don't know if they're required to have a flight data data recorder. I think they are, um, and cockpit voice recorder. There, there was some uh, ATC audio um, in the the last uh, few minutes of the flight there that we're not going to play on the show because it's just too. Uh, what would the word? Tragic, yeah. Graphic uh, and graphic, yes. Okay, well. Um, we're hoping to hear more about this as the investigation continues. Uh, Dr. Dan says, from what he can tell, yes, a high bank stall. And there are two very large hills that they were trying to fly between or through. So Dan's going to send us in some audio, I think, uh, on this incident. Okay. Uh, Dan said that he's going to be, Dr. Dan is going to send us some audio regarding this as well. Okay. Um yeah. Anything else to say about this other than it's a, it was a, a tragic accident, as any aviation accident is when lives are lost. And uh, we're hoping that they'll be able to figure out exactly what happened there so that others can hopefully avoid getting themselves into that same situation. No, that's absolutely right. But it's just if the conditions are poor and you're in any doubt, um, go around. Uh, and think of another way to make an approach because you know you really don't want to be putting yourself in a position where um, you're really having to use all your skill just to stay above the ground. Um, you know, if the conditions aren't good and if things aren't looking right, take the easy option, go around, get on your gauges, climb away, uh, and find a you know an instrument approach you can do where you can do a straight in. Right. Now, um, someone uh, online was offering the suggestion that perhaps they could have uh, flown the uh, straight-in approach to 2-7 right, which is actually not a straight-in approach. It's a, it's a circling approach, technically speaking, uh, but it, I believe, had the same restrictions as far as uh, circling um, minimum and minima and restrictions uh, or the not allowed factor for runway 27 right so that's probably why it's not the straight in approach to 27 right it's a it's a circle approach coming in from the east heading to the west which yeah. looks like it would line you right up with 27 right but technically it's a circle approach because of the high terrain uh, very close to the airport absolutely yeah uh, gubby our c17 canadian c17 pilot uh, says circling approaches are the hardest and most potentially fatal maneuver you can fly especially when the weather is marginal yep that's what we probably have here all right moving on um that's enough of the body count for today yeah enough of the if it leads if it bleeds it leads uh segment of our news um this is an item um boone county 
and uh, I'm not sure exactly where Boone County is. Um, well, it's where maybe, you get all the money. There's a Boone in North Carolina, but that's a town, and I don't yeah, think it's... Yeah, but there are probably county. Boones everywhere, I would imagine. Probably. I don't know. And near Covington, maybe that's uh, Kentucky. Kentucky, perhaps? I don't know. Anyway, a Boone County jury awards nearly $2 million to pilot fired for refusing to fly in unsafe conditions. A pilot who flew a private plane for Columbia, Sussex in Crestview Hills, oh, now we know, uh, was awarded $1.99 million in damages by a Boone County jury after he was fired for refusing to fly to the Caribbean as a hurricane threatened. The award includes $1.3 million in punitive damages. Uh, the attorney, Anthony Butcher, of, of whom we have a wonderful picture. We thought it was the pilot, but apparently they don't have a picture of the pilot. Uh, well, who's really more the, important uh, in this story picture. anyway? <laughs> yeah. To be honest. Uh, oh, that is see. enough to he buy a caravan. The, You're right. I hold boxes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Said the facts of the case were persuasive. Everybody's been on a plane. Everybody's experienced unpredictable weather. So in that respect, this was a compelling case. Uh, the attorney said, I never dreamt we'd get the kind of verdict we got, but I'm certainly pleased with it. <laughs> sure. I bet you are. <laughs> I bet. I had a really yeah. nice payday. Hey. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'll be honest. I'm not going to have to work for another 10 years. No, he doesn't say that. I'll be honest. <laughs> in, in closing, I, I asked the jury for 1 million in punitive. They came back with 1.3 million. So they were obviously moved. According to his client, uh, pilot Ray saying this is Indiana. Oh, Indiana. Thank you. Who is this? Heading Tom, Tom Dugan says, uh, it's where Cincinnati is though. So I'm oh, not yeah, that's sure. where Covington we've got, we've is Cincinnati. Locations. Yeah. So it's somewhere in the well, Midwest. In that, we've narrowed it down to the, the Midwest <laughs> yeah, of the that. United States. <laughs> you know, honestly, it really doesn't matter. Does it? No, not really. That's the no. middle. Why even? It, yes. Yeah. As they referred to it, <laughs> what did they call it on Anchorman? The Middle East of the country or something. Because <laughs> he's on <laughs> the, the West Coast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, from that perspective, that does make sense. I know. It makes sense if you're, on, if you're in California. Anyway. Yeah. I never understood Midwest, though. It, there's not, the, not even close to the West. Anyway. Um, the, the pilot was the client. His name, Ray Justinick uh, or Justinick. Uh, the weather conditions made it unsafe to fly on that day. He informed his employers he would check conditions on the following day, and if they were safe, he would fly then. When he called in the next day to discuss the situation, he was told that the company had hired a temporary pilot to make the trip the night before. A few days later, he was informed he no longer worked for the company. Justinick was an employee of AirTech, which was hired by Columbia Sussex to manage its planes and pilots. Fort Mitchell Construction is an affiliated company of Columbia Sussex, which operates the planes. All three entities are defendants in the lawsuit. So, Justin Nick had uh, close close to 50 years of experience flying, first for law enforcement and then for Delta Airlines. According to FAA rules, pilots who reach age 65 can no longer fly commercial airline jets, but they can continue to fly for private companies if their medical requirements are kept up to date. In January 2017, after retiring from Delta, he took a position flying a private plane for Columbia, Sussex. The company operates about 40 hotels, including the Weston Don Beach Resort and Spa on St. Martin. The hotel incurred damage when the island was hit by Irma, 
a Category 4 hurricane on September 6, 2017. The company later filed for $175 million in insurance claims. According to the complaint filed by Justinic, on Saturday, September 9, while Irma had moved toward Florida, the owners asked him to load the plane and fly relief supplies and insurance adjusters to the site to assess damages. He would also transport employees of the hotel off the island. The plan was for him to first fly to San Juan in Puerto Rico and then wait there until he could continue to St. Martin. Butcher, the lawyer, said his client came in on that Saturday and helped to load the plane with shovels, rakes, and cleaning supplies, but said he was concerned about weather conditions and where he might stop to fuel up or if he encountered mechanical issues or other concerns during the flight. After checking weather conditions, he informed his company contact that it was unsafe to fly that day and offered to keep an eye on the weather with the hope that the next day conditions would the next day conditions would be more favorable. Uh, the attorney explained that his client believed that the weather did not look good. He gets home about 4 p.m., starts looking at some weather information. His position was, I'm 69 years old. I've been loading a plane for four hours with 2,000 pounds worth of stuff. I'm not in the position to fly three and a half hours in any kind of weather. At that point, another hurricane, Jose, was approaching the area and winds had been picking up, the lawyer said. Uh, the pilot told the lawyer he called in Saturday night, Saturday night and said he was not flying anywhere that night and it was looking iffy for the next day as well, but that he would get up early and check. Instead, the company hired another pilot through a temporary agency. We heard that earlier. The next morning, my client, not knowing that they had made that decision, got up at five in the morning, put together a flight plan. He said he was prepared to go, but couldn't get any information back from his employers. It was going to be a dicey flight on Sunday, but one he was prepared to make. The hurricane, Jose, had turned north, so he said he was going to try to circle down and come under it. Once he did reach the company, Justinick was told someone else had made the trip a few days later, and then he was informed, as we just learned, that he was out of a job. And then uh, what the attorney said he finds amazing about all of this is what the company did next. He explained that no matter how much experience a pilot has, they must train and be rated to fly specific types of planes. When Justinick was hired, he did not have the rating he need, needed, but the company agreed to pay for him to get the training. The cost of the training was $34,000. The owner had an addendum placed on the job offer to Justinick that said if he left the company within two years for another job, he would have to pay back a prorated portion of the training expense. The pilot agreed to the deal and signed on. Only a few weeks after he was let go, he received a letter from the company stating that he would be sued if he did not return $20,000 of the training cost. According to the termination letter from his direct employer, Airtech, his refusal to fly to San Juan was unjustified and constituted abandonment of his job. When the pilot refused to reimburse the company, his employer filed a lawsuit alleging breach of contract, as well as promissory estoppel. I, don't, I should have looked that up. How do you pronounce that? Estoppel. I've never seen that word before. Okay. In the contract. Oh yeah. How did you know that stuff? I'm just smart. <laughs> and I, reading. I know in her right spare there. time, she did a law degree. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So going back and on his pro one's promise in the contract and after that yeah. word for anyone who's listening and unjust enrichment. But, but you did sound very smart. How did you? I know. know I just couldn't take credit for that. I, I had no anything. idea what that word meant. <laughs> Okay. At the end of the day, I don't know if my client would have pursued a claim against them had they not initiated that, said the lawyer. It was clear from Justin Nick's actions he did not abandon his job. He had just he had a full intention of flying the plane as soon as conditions allowed 
texts presented in the case showed the pilot and his contact at the company discussing ideas and alternatives for several days with the pilot providing wind and weather updates. One issue complicating the case in the beginning was the number of different yet interrelated companies involved. Okay, I'm not going to worry about that part. Um, we don't care about that, do we? No. Um, I mean, I think I think we got kind of the meat and potatoes. Yeah, the of gist of it. it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, go ahead, Steph. I I kind of agree with all of this. I I, I you know, it, 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 it without having read what the addendum to his contract said, it sounds like. The addendum basically said if he left for another job, like to take another job, mm-hmm. then he would have to pay back the the rating. Um, well, he didn't leave, you know. And if they have mm-hmm. texts and other things that support that he was just trying to make good aeronautical decisions, um, then yeah, I, I I'm a little surprised at the amount of the award, but um, yeah, I think everybody was. <laughs> yeah, including the lawyer, and- the attorney. Including the attorney and um, Nick and I were talking about this and and Liz as well earlier uh, before we started recording. And I said, it's kind of ironic because I think that it wasn't, I mean, I think that maybe it wasn't a huge surprise by Justinick that, that he was let go uh, for his refusal to fly that flight down to Puerto Rico and ultimately San St. Martin. Uh, But when the company said, oh, yeah, you owe us this amount, you know, $20,000 to help reimburse. And he goes, well, no way. I'm not going to do that. And that's when the whole lawsuit process started up. Mm-hmm. And the irony in it is that the company not only didn't get their $20,000 reimbursement for training costs, but right. they ended up out <laughs> almost $2 million. So, and now, Nick, I, I, you were, you were looking sure at some can, of the uh, weather. Of, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just out of interest. I was looking uh, at the weather at uh, San Jose to see uh, how bad it was, or San Juan. Um, and it didn't actually look that bad. Uh, but that's not the whole story, of course, uh, no. because you, you've got to think of the weather en route. And you know, if if it looked pretty bad on route, and there was no easy option to get and into what that, what type of aircraft uh, is he actually flying? Would he have needed to stop? Yeah, somewhere that's the other question. I, I fuel, don't know. Or you know, what's our, what are his resources there? I don't um, know. How so many? The, 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 there are some unknowns here, but he he, he said he discussed the weather. Um, another pilot obviously found a way to do it, uh, which makes me think that perhaps there was a way to do it. Uh, it's just that. Mr. Justinick uh, had decided that uh, it wasn't suitable for him, which is fine. Every pilot makes their own decisions come to that. Um, and, uh, you know, the the company took umbrage at that. Uh, I, I think it's a ludicrous amount of money personally, but uh, I don't blame him for uh, countersuing the company because, uh, you know, if someone wants to try and, uh, get money out of me that uh, to cover my training when they've just fired me, I would also feel pretty upset and uh, want to take some uh, legal action um, in my defense. And it seems to have worked out well for him. So good luck. Mm-hmm. Yep. It does indeed. Well, what's the, this isn't really the how the uh, what the phrase is meant for, but, you know, play silly games, win silly prizes. I feel like the company was trying to play a silly game by asking for their uh, typewriting money back in this case, and um, yeah. they won a silly yeah. prize. 
They don't actually say exactly what the wording of his contract was because it may, no, they there don't, may have been we, a clause in yeah. there that allowed them to reclaim uh, if they um, sacked him under certain circumstances. Sure. Yeah. It's also not clear if he ended up getting another job with another outfit. You know, it doesn't really say that here I mean, at all. No. At nearly no. 70, he might have been like, yeah, forget it. And now he doesn't really need to, I wouldn't think, for the money no. anyway. Mm-hmm. I'd go buy a big boat. <laughs> I was, Nick and I were talking about this, and I said, you know, I, I, I kind of think what happened here is the guy, he's 69, you know, <laughs> he's not a spring chicken. Um, and I'm six, I just turned 63 myself. And, you know, after, you know, spending many hours loading up stuff and looking at the weather going, yeah, I'm probably going to, he's probably going to have to fly at night and it's kind of uncertain weather and yeah, I'm too old for this. (laughs) Yeah. Like forget this. I'm just going to tell him I can't do it. That's more, that's above my risk, um, level I'm willing to take. Yeah. And Nick's right. And that's why I think that he may have. He he may not have been really, as I said earlier, I don't know for sure, but he may not have been that surprised when he heard that the company had let him go. And, uh, and, and we may not even have been talking about this at all at that point until the company said, hey, wait a minute, before you go, we want some money back from you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I somehow think the company didn't represent themselves very well if uh, they managed to convince this lawyer, managed to convince the jury yeah. that, uh, you know, he, he was it was worth this amount of money because uh, I'm thinking punitive damages. Uh, yeah. The guy's nearly 70. Who's no. going to employ him now anyway? 70? So, God. Yeah. I would have thought there it would have been go. along the lines of, well, Sorry you lost your job. They felt like you could have done it. You disagreed. That's probably up for maybe a little bit of debate, but you don't owe them. Good news is you don't owe them $20,000. Everybody have a nice yeah. day. That would yes, have been reasonable. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cover my lawyer fees, but please, because that's going to yeah. be a bad and, and you pay his lawyer, his legal fees. Yeah. Yes. Good. Done. Yeah. Yeah. But there you go. But yeah, welcome to welcome to the legal climate in America. He's nearly 70. You should have heard Liz's response to that. <laughs> Almost 70. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's really old, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, it is. Anyway. All right. Well, enough of that Last one. Last but not least. Last but not day. least in our news notebook here, we're going to talk about this one. And this is <laughs> cool. this a worry. I'm scratching my head. I on. wish Rick this had is been a worry. here for this. Yeah, that would have been uh, handy to have uh, some... Triple seven knowledge and experience. Yeah. Uh, let's see what we can do with it, though. Um, and and we may have maybe something from Rick um, in the future regarding this if we get it wrong. Um, an Emirates Boeing triple seven three hundred registration Alpha Six Echo Quebec India performing flight two thirty one from Dubai, uh, United Arab Arab Emirates to Washington Dulles uh, Airport in uh, District of Columbia DC was accelerating for takeoff from Dubai's runway 30 right when the aircraft rotated for takeoff past the end of the runway and began and became airborne just at the end of the runway and safety area. Uh, I meant to look up the uh, length of uh, runway 30 right to see how uh, long I'll, that was. I'll see how long it takes me to get there. Okay. It's okay. pretty long. Nick's, Nick's probably got it. I would imagine. No, but I probably, don't, but I seem to recall they're quite big over there. Yeah, that's what she said. <laughs> um, the aircraft continued to Washington for a landing without further incident. The aircraft performed the flight 232 back 
uh, to Dubai on schedule, then was grounded in Dubai and remained on the ground for in Dubai for four days. By the way, this Runway is from three zero right Aviation is, Herald. is fourteen thousand two hundred and seventy five feet long. Yeah. Okay. Enough. So, according to Mode S data transmitted by the aircraft's transponder, the aircraft remained on the ground until accelerating through at least 216 knots ground speed, about 4,400 meters or 14,400 feet past the runway threshold. So, yeah, that's why they were in the safety area. And about 90 meters short of the localizer antennas and was airborne at 75 feet above ground at 234 knots over ground already over the first residential houses past the runway, mm. which was 18,500 <laughs> feet. <laughs> like the whole house. Why did what my ceiling so fan just fall out of the ceiling? <laughs> <laughs> they thought that was the end of the world, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, 18,500 mm. feet. So that's, uh, what, 4,000 feet past the end of the runway and uh, 75 feet, a triple seven. Wow. Yeah. That's going to be impressive. According to, oh, uh, according to, oh, yes. That was it. Wait, hold on. What's that next part? 18,500 feet past the runway threshold they were at? Yeah. Okay. And the runway was 14,275 feet. Oh, past so the threshold. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah so not far. 4,000. Okay. I'm with you. Yeah. Math. According, got it. Yep. Gotcha. I mean, there are two th- runway thresholds here, but I guess they're talking about the, they're talking the one about at, the, the, yes, at the beginning. The beginning, not the end. Yeah. According to information the Aviation Herald received, the aircraft sustained some damage in the departure. There is also information that a total of four crew members may have been dismissed as a result of the occurrence. All four pilots uh, in the cockpit. Yeah, uh, there's which no is evidence a of a bit that. of a shame since two of those pilots would have been relief pilots. They wouldn't have been the operating crew. Mm-hmm. Only two guys are the operating crew. The other two are just sitting in the back picking their noses, and that's probably the they reason were, were they. they- Sitting in in the back, or were they up front? No, they were in the cockpit. In the in the cockpit, in the jump Well, I, yeah, yeah I, I mean the back of the cockpit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which yeah. puts them in a so, position where they might be able to uh, notice an error, but uh, they don't really have any active role sure. other than you know just letting people know if they see something wrong. Now, to be fair, um, there is no. Uh, I mean, anytime an incident like this happens. Um, you're, you're going to be taking, you're going to be taken off of your flying schedule until they can investigate it and maybe take a look at possible administrative or punitive action against the pilot. So it could be that that the interpretation is wrong. Maybe eventually they will be be fired or let go, or maybe they just said, took them off. It might be, but I don't think Emirates are a company that have many worries about just firing people. That's true. Just yeah, put it I don't out think there. they're unionized, are they? No, they're not unionized, no. are they? No, they're not. Okay. They're, they're and yeah. they they kind of uh, have a pretty draconian um, employment lawyers over there. So the employer can mm-hmm. generally do a lot of things that you might not consider normal in other countries. Well, um, on the twenty seventh of December, uh, so just a few days ago, Emirates released a crew alert to their pilots following the occurrence, suggesting that the crew had not picked up uh, the, that the previous flight crew had left the altitude setting on the master control panel at airport elevation, uh, causing the flight director to not indicate takeoff rotation and climb out, but instead indicate to maintain that, that altitude. 
altitude ALT mode. So again, here's the crew alert um, company notum B triple seven MCP uh, power up defaults and after oh after landing shutdown MCP changes. Crews are reminded that there are no flight crew operations manual normal procedure requirements to change the mode control panel the MCP after landing or shutdown. There have been times when the MCP altitude window has been set to the airport elevation, which may cause issues on the subsequent departure. The FCOM 4.10.2 states that the AFDS, the auto flight, let's see, the AFDS digital, what is that? AFDS uh, will engage in out when the first flight director switch is turned on. If the MCP selected altitude is within 20 feet of the displayed barrel, it's probably altitude. the auto flight director system. Okay. Crew I'm shall just... not set airport elevation on the MCP after landing or shutdown. Okay. So there's, there's, um, people are surmising that that may have something to do with this particular incident. Uh, the weather, if you're interested, was CAV okay. So uh, very light winds, two, three knots. Two or three knots, not two, three knots. And um, temperature uh, 20, you know, dew point 15. It was a nice day. It was nice weather. Yeah. Not even too hot for no. for Dubai. Hmm. Uh, so regardless, okay, so here, if I understand this correctly, um, regardless of what your flight director bars or system is indicating, if, if, if you've flown an airplane for – any number any of hours, of and I'm time? sure that these crews, <laughs> any length of time, that these people, you know, were had a lot of hours of experience of flying, you know, transport category airplanes, or any kind of airplane for that matter. You, you, when you're taking off, you, you, you pitch the nose up, and depending on the airplane, could be 12 degrees, 15 degrees, 20 degrees in my case. Um, it's just a, that's what you do regardless of what your instrumentation is telling you to do. And I, I really find it hard to believe. I really do that. This crew looked at these flight director bars and decided, Oh, it's telling me to uh, level off or even descend back down to this altitude, which is ground level. And that's why the airplane got so low. And finally, you know, it took so long for them to, to, to climb out. I don't know. That is just almost you know, we're talking a serious case of um, of uh, what's the uh, uh, the I'm trying to find my sound effect here. The children, children magenta of the magenta. magenta. Yes. Yeah. Uh, let's see. But here we go. See, we have become what I call children of the magenta. Click, mm -hmm. click, click, click. So, yeah, uh, I, I haven't a clue what happened to the automation, Jeff, as uh, I can't see how the autopilot would come active when they're still on the runway, mm -hmm. but they didn't even rotate. I mean, who was calling rotate and why were they still on the ground at 216 knots as they ran off the end of the runway, effectively? I'm going, what on earth was yeah, going on? And then having got airborne to let the altimeter, well, apparently the... Uh, autopilot captured 75 feet and they remained at that height for another 4,000 feet until they decided that it was time to climb away. I'm going, what on earth was going on? I'm, I'm I completely the autopilot, the autopilot was on. I think it was just the flight director system, not the autopilot system. I mean, oh, okay. I'd be really well, surprised if the autopilot was on. 
Well, I mean, uh, you know, something, most... something, uh, yeah. Why on earth they decided to stay at seventy-five feet? I mean, with the airplane racing away. I mean, I fly uh, much smaller aircraft, but I, I guarantee you, in the aircraft I fly, if you get to a certain speed, it's going to take off. Whether you, unless you're yeah. holding it physically on the ground, like pushing nose forward, and then you're really actually going to have problems. Um, yeah, if you if you reach rotation speed in the airplanes I fly, probably different in a jet, different wing, um, but. It doesn't take a whole lot to, you know, no, climb. No, I'm, I can't wait point. for Rick's take on this. Uh, he'll be able to explain to me what this, um, uh, which says the FDS will engage in uh, out when the first flight director is switched, is turned on. The flight um, director system. So part of the, you know, the flight directors. Yeah. Uh, the yeah, bars. So I, I, I really want to know. I mean, if what, I see that, I'm going to go, well, obviously, there's something wrong with that. I'm not going to do that. That would be completely <laughs> yes. irrational to do yes, that. Yes, exactly. Autopilot. So I'm hoping system. that there's got to be something else that happened here, <laughs> that something else is going on and not this. Because if this yeah. is what happened, oh, I, I, these people deserve to be fired. In my opinion, and not only that, if the if the altitude in the uh, mode control panel was set to the airport elevation, how many times in the checklists d- that they ran supposedly are there references to that? Uh, like your departure briefing, your navigation briefing, all these different things where you're you're checking all these things and all these mode control yeah. windows to make sure that they're properly set. And in this case, I'd even say that the two pilots that weren't actively in the control seats at that point, I mean, they kind of have a responsibility to make sure everything is set up properly too, you know? Yeah, they they do. They do. Um, But um, the other thing is um, they actually got airborne. I mean, they must have realized they got airborne uh, off the end of the runway. Uh, And then they continued? Yeah, they took the aircraft all the way Mm -hmm. to Washington. Yeah. What on earth were they thinking there? It doesn't sound like there was a lot of thinking, as far as I can <laughs> well, surmise I yeah, from exactly. the, the facts in this article. Exactly. I, yeah. I would have considered no, maybe I'm just intrigued. staying in the United States forever. Exactly. Forever. Rick, Rick, help us out. Tell us what went on political here. asylum. Yeah. We'll definitely uh, get Rick's take on this. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Someone just send it, to... like, Liz, just send it to him now and tell him he needs to... Let us know yeah. what he thinks. Just record something <laughs> so we can yeah. figure out what the heck happened here. Yeah. Just we're just pulling our hair or scratching our heads trying to figure this out. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully we'll we'll find out a little bit more about that uh in the future. So in the meantime, I think it's now time for our getting to know us segment. You're allowed to sing, Jeff. It's your show. No, I don't want to upset stuff. Just get the lyrics right. That's all I'm asking. Well, I, if I sing it, I'm not going to sing the the proper lyrics. Just that's. I'm just not going to. Doesn't make sense, Steph. I know. Well, I don't always make sense, Liz. Okay. Uh, let's um, hear about uh, what's been happening with. Uh, Dr. Steph. Oh, with me. Um, this is going to be, yeah, there, there was a lot going on last week and this week, mm-hmm. not so much. So it's going to be a brief, short and sweet update from me. 
Um, okay. Let's see, we had Christmas, and then more importantly, Captain Jeff's birthday, which I'm sure he'll tell us all about. Um, not really not much to tell. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there is. Um, and then, um, gosh, what else? I'm not even sure. So um, last time we recorded, Carlos was still here visiting, correct? And we did. Did you finally get him I out of there? Finally convinced the UK to take him back. Um, <laughs> they were. I was doing my best from this end. Unwilling. We yeah. don't. We don't want him. So keep it. Keep it there. <laughs> but they relented and, and accepted. So um, yeah. So he's he's got back home in time to celebrate Christmas uh, with his family. So that's that's very nice. Um, Christmas year, quiet affair. My uh, youngest brother was in town, uh, which was nice, and we agreed on no gifts or anything. We're just going to hang out and enjoy each other's company and had Christmas Eve dinner with my neighbors to one side of my house and Christmas Day dinner with neighbors on the other side of the house. And now I have a fridge full of all of those leftovers, and I'm not really sure how that happened, but I will be eating Christmas <laughs> leftovers for weeks until it rots in my fridge. I love Christmas leftovers. I I, they're, they're really, it's really good food, but there's only mm. so many days in a row I can eat ham and potatoes and like mac and cheese and, and oh that's gone um and, <laughs> yes, and i gosh i'm not even sure yeah a lot of there's a lot of food in my fridge let's just put it that way um and i ate way 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 too much both of those days um and tried to go for a long run on sunday with my little brother and we both struggled a bit in that endeavor because um yeah we were our stomachs were quite full and unwilling to participate in um, more vigorous physical activity as of yet. But um, back to work this week. I was off work last week. Um, typically a very busy week for us. This week was no exception. Um, it's the end of the year, which in this country means that everyone has met their insurance, <clears throat> excuse me, their insurance deductibles, and they would like to get any and all elective procedures done before that changes, you know, at the stroke of midnight on uh, December 31st to January 1st. Uh, so hopefully we were able to accommodate a lot of folks and I'm sure there were some that didn't quite make the cutoff and, um, yeah, we'll see how it goes in the new year. Very good. Mm -hmm. No real Very big nice. new year's plans coming up. Um, again, hopefully a quiet weekend and spending time with family. Sounds good. Yeah. Sounds Do the really dogs good, get yeah. to enjoy all that extra Christmas food? <laughs> they definitely got some, uh, some Christmas, <laughs> um, <laughs> Table scraps, I would say. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. Well, Nicholas, I believe that uh, you got out of town um, right before Christmas or right after? Uh, yes, we did. Yes. Uh, after, uh, I don't know, 47 years of <laughs> marriage, my wife finally persuaded me uh, to take her to a hotel for Christmas because she said, you know, Every Christmas, I, I cook and slave in the kitchen for you uh, boys, and uh, I never get a break. So this year, we we went off to what turned out to be a delightful hotel in the New Forest, a gorgeous area. Um, it, weather wasn't brilliant, so we couldn't do a lot of walking. But having said that, uh, we were occupied at every moment. It seemed that uh, from, you know, uh, mulled wine as soon as you sort of stepped in the door and mince pies through uh, canapes and afternoon teas and uh, you know everything that they could possibly throw at you the christmas 
luncheon was a seven-course meal uh, with a line of wine glasses that resembled, uh, you know, pieces on a chessboard. <laughs> there were mm. so many of them. And uh, poor Jilly, uh, she had been put on some new medication because her knee's giving her a lot of hassle, and um, she didn't want to drink. So... <laughs> So does that oh, mean well, that you had to help her out? Um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, yeah. drink her very, very. Um, I, I'm afraid I had to. Called. I manfully, I manfully managed right. to drink all ten glasses of wine. Um, <laughs> I know, <And> which <laughs> went from, from the table. champagne through all the colours, uh, you know, including some really nice reds. Oh, that explains why uh, you spent some 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 time in the local um, in the local holding cell at the uh, in town. Okay, I understand. Yeah. Okay. No, it really was lovely, uh, excellent service from the, uh, the the lovely staff there. That was great at the Ramfield House Hotel. Um, we came back and uh, and then Julie realised that. Um, she still had to cook Christmas lunch because the boys. <laughs> no now arrived and went, oh, well, uh, we haven't got no Christmas yet. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Didn't you Aren't leave they instructions adults? Couldn't for... they have cooked the meal? Yeah, told Julie us on the provided last show them with that... a, a meal. Yeah. They could have just followed the instructions. Um, mm -hmm. But the one that was capable of doing that, uh, sadly, uh, was still isolating after a bout of COVID. Okay. So he wasn't um, here for Christmas Day. He he arrived the next day, and by that time we were back. So uh, Jilly uh, stepped okay. in and did it. Uh, so we, we had two Christmases, effectively. A lot of lovely presents, very happy. Uh, and um, now it's all over. Thank the Lord for that. Yes. I'll never get that money. Wonderful. No, it looked like an amazing place that you were staying and just it was um, beautiful. incredible beautiful. feasts yeah, yeah. that you were enjoying. Yeah. I don't think I can afford to go there twice, though. Hmm. You never Very good. Can. Any yeah, plans so that was, for that was my Christmas? Uh, no, we don't, we don't kind of do New Year, uh, really. Um, we're going to be up with uh, one of our dogs in particular who gets very upset. So uh, we're going to be looking after him. So we'll go anywhere. We can't afford to leave him and uh, watch him have his his uh, poor tantrums uh, when all the fireworks go off. So uh, we'll have a quiet one at home and uh, I'll probably stay out with him and uh, see what happens. So fingers crossed it's not too bad. Fingers yeah. crossed. All right. Yes. So let me get this straight. Uh, the dog um, gets upset about the fact that it's the end of the old new, uh, year and the new oh, yeah, year is yeah, about yeah, to really start. Oh, yeah, really upset. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, he doesn't, doesn't like doesn't resolutions. Like... And... No, no, he never does. <laughs> and if he, if he makes any, he never sticks to them either. Oh, what a bum. Well, that's Triple difficult. dog, yeah. <laughs> so um, my Christmas uh, was enjoyable, especially Christmas Eve, because I did a lot of singing as I want to do. Um, yeah, you're this, a busy boy, weren't of you? Did you get the lyrics yeah. right? <laughs> I do actually, for the most part, get the lyrics right. Okay, um, I don't change them uh -huh. on purpose. Anyway, people at church uh, are more forgiving. And yes, yeah, so, and yes, uh, good point, Liz. The people in church are much more forgiving and understanding than certain <laughs> yeah. co-hosts of a certain aviation That's podcast. Very true. Yeah, yeah I'll true. give them credit on that one. I. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, uh, so I enjoyed that. Uh, started at the four o'clock, the six o'clock, the nine o'clock, and then the eleven thirty, which is essentially our midnight mess. And uh, drove home up to the cabin. Uh, after that, got in a little after two o'clock, two fifteen, two thirty, something like that. And uh, had a couple of uh, beers and and. Uh, just sat back and relaxed and then went to bed. And then the next day was Christmas Day and uh, didn't have to drive back down to Roswell to do any more singing. I was basically off, had a nice quiet Christmas Day up at the cabin. And then uh, the next day was my birthday, the 26th hey. of December. I know most people refer to it as Boxing Day or something. That's silly. Yeah, think of the holiday name wrong. St. Jeffrey's weird, Day. But- yeah. Yeah, it's the Feast of Jeff Day. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so uh, I uh, and enjoyed the day um, in uh, in isolation up in the cabin, um, and uh, it was just a bum and um, watched things on TV and uh, just uh, as far as I remember, that's all I did. So, uh, when you say that I had a great <laughs> did you birthday also celebration, have ten well, glasses of wine. <laughs> I probably did, uh, okay, and sure. and and a case of beer or something. I don't know. Maybe all okay. at the same. I'd really rather not say thank you. Fair enough. Um, I, I will say. I will say. Both of my neighbors are avid wine drinkers, and it was pretty much all I could do to not. I had to make sure my glass always had enough wine in it that it wasn't in danger of being refilled by someone. Because ah. oh, the old cap, the Captain Al, the Captain Al trick. Boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly. Well <laughs> so two more years to go, Jeff. Yeah, two more years to go. Yeah, I was uh, uh, telling is people that um, is that actually on lift? Yeah, the on end my, is near. Uh, oh wait, on my birthday <laughs> it was uh, it was Saturday, and uh, I, I did drive back down to uh, Roswell and and sing in a couple of masses on uh, on Saturday. Your so it was on Sunday. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, my birthday was Sunday. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know. I'm getting all confused now. I'm not sure what the heck I did. I'm not surprised. Uh, and so all, the, all the wine drinking and beer drinking, yeah. I think, is clouding my too. recollection. Yeah. yeah. But I can tell you this, that uh, I am on a trip now. I left yesterday. It's a very, very difficult trip. Uh, one flight to Dallas yesterday. Yeah. And then uh, today um, – Two flights went to Atlanta and then here to Jackson, Mississippi. Now I have to say that uh, we we got out of Atlanta with good timing as far as weather was concerned. Yesterday, not so much today. Uh, the line of weather going through Atlanta was not not very pleasant. Uh, that was probably the most turbulence that I've encountered in the seven one seven since I've been on it, and uh, it was I was very surprised that the autopilot didn't disconnect. Uh, that's how you know bumpy it got Uh, but we had everybody prepared and had our flight attendants seated and everybody was expecting uh, us to get a bump or two and uh, there was we just had to get through that line to get on the other side of the airport so we could land so uh, that worked out okay and then uh, from atlanta to here the uh, the weather cooperated a little bit better there were little spots here and there close to the atlanta airport when we left but soon after uh, we departed and were in our climb out uh, things improved very rapidly and we Got here without a without a problem, and um, so the exciting part of this trip is tomorrow uh, and tomorrow night. Uh, tomorrow we go from here to Atlanta early in the morning, and then get to Toronto 
Ontario, Canada. I'm getting uh, my Canada wine glasses lives, out. And it's yeah, we do know New Year's uh, we, Eve. Uh, we know a, oh, yeah. a certain producer director. Break out the, uh, the wine the glasses. <laughs> Yeah, Lisa, she's she's now. she has ten glasses already set out Each. for me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I get to spend my New Year's Eve with Liz, and Yay. I'm really looking forward well to that. Excellent. We were looking forward really to seeing. I'm really looking forward oh, to it too. Yay! Good. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I was kind of disappointed that Liz, you couldn't make it, uh, down to Atlanta for the 500th episode. And I know that you were very, very disappointed, uh, by that as well, but Hey, we're going to make it up and, um, and have a great time yeah. tomorrow night. Absolutely. And uh, I'm, be fun. I can't say that we'll be staying up until the, no, the crack you of got midnight. An early morning on Saturday. I have a very early morning <laughs> sign in on uh, new year's day. So. Yeah, I'll have to keep the uh, the wine drinking to a minimum and uh, and uh, get a, as good a night's sleep as I can. There's only one like one flight back home to Atlanta on uh, on Saturday morning, I guess. So there you go. Uh, that's yeah, what, those, uh, what those we have. Those TSA horrors they they'll be on the watch out. Yeah, will they? Oh, don't they do that? No, in they'll probably the states? they'll be recovering themselves. Yeah, I think. they're going to be probably in the a very good chance as everyone see. else. <laughs> oh, okay, uh, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, there you have it. Fun. Now you're all all caught up with uh, me and the rest of the crew. Oh, and we had mentioned earlier that Rick um, was. Um, Called out? No, not called out. He had no, no, um, he has a, an, an issue. He has a, a minor issue, medical a medical issue. Yeah, a medical That's problem. Right. He could he couldn't some yes. a vision problem. He couldn't see you doing the show today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some, some kind um, of glaucoma. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I think no, it's time now to move on that. to. <laughs> no, he does not have glaucoma, as far as we know. <laughs> no, I, I'm the one with glaucoma. Oh, okay, it, there we go. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Forget I said that he's, I'm not going to be fine. That joke on air. It's fine. People will know where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, well. It's fine. Moving on. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Here we go. Let's talk a little bit about the coffee fund, which. Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. Is your way. Well, let me sing first. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Jeff Smith in Nashville, Tennessee, our jingle master extraordinaire, uh, singing the Java Jive, the APG version. And the reason why he's doing that is because we talk about our coffee fund, which is your way to support the show financially if you have the financial resources to do so. Uh, it's been a while since I've mentioned the fact that if you are uh, someone uh, who is uh, spending money on um, uh, sustenance and and uh, and clothing and shelter and, or flying lessons, <laughs> spend it there. Don't send it to us. But if you have some extra pennies or pence left over, please consider joining this great group of people, our Coffee Fund Cadre. And a couple different ways to... Join the Coffee Bar Club is, um, well, the first one is the Coffee Fun Classic method. A couple different things you can do with that. You can make a one-time donation, as Michael Smith did, a very, very generous uh, donation. Thank you, Michael. 
Uh, or you can do recurring donations as Vigner and Alistair have done. Uh, so thank you guys for that. Also, you can become a patron of the show via Patreon. And all that information is available to you by going over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will too. Jeff, we want to show the cover art from the last show when, when Nick gets back. Captain, incoming message. Jeff? Hello, Jeff. Yeah, I hear you. I was just okay. I was waiting to say anything so I wouldn't talk over the uh, the bumper. Okay. Um, so we forgot. Uh, the control room is telling me that I've forgotten to um, do the cover art from the last show. There we go. Uh, last show <laughs> episode five zero two uh, was it's kind of kind of a mess. It's In fact, we saw some gory pictures. Um, uh, regarding a, um, uh, was it a heron that was, um, yes, the heron, heron bolognese. Mm. Uh, and, <laughs> yes, and I thought, I thought those pictures were gross, uh, but no, <laughs> leave it to Nick no. to come up with something Nick even more had to make, you know, Yeah, it was, he's like, was oh, horrible. you want blood and guts? I got it. Yeah. yeah but nobody asked cover. for this. No. You, you're clear, I, yeah, right? That, I, I kind of went rogue. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> you it was kind of a mixture and then no one, of, and then no one even questioned it we we're like yeah that's fine thanks <laughs> yeah. that's good exactly right uh what's that uh cartoon made by the same people that used to make the simpsons it's in the the future futurama uh, you know, the, no um yeah futurama you know don't they have a a, a deadly santa that in that one that Goes and blows everyone up. I think never watched it actually. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that, I kind of had that in my mind and helicopters buzzing um, mm. arenas and Santa getting involved and blood and guts. So there you go. I, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, I noticed mul- that I managed to make uh, one helicopter nicely saving a, um, a deer. Did you notice that in oh, the top yes, corner? Right there. There you go. A, oh, yeah. A look at that. Suspended on a. Uh-huh. On a I didn't wire. Rudolph? That is very. Uh, I well, personally think that bloke's taking it to Steph to drop in her backyard. <laughs> Good, just so I need more deer in my backyard. Right Thanks. The yeah, there you go. That's what I thought. Yeah, the deer, deer better be careful. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look a lot like this picture uh, with Steph. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> see, sees that deer. <laughs> no. Yeah. Neil Lamorne spotted the episode number as well. Well yes. done, Neil. Yeah. Oh, very Much good, of Neil. a big telly. Or something. Anyway, we entitled the show. Oh dear! <laughs> All right. Um, well, so there we now go. We covered time. it. A uh, little out of order. Um, so now we get to continue with our show and uh, do some feedback. Does anybody need to take a break before we do that? Not yet. No, nope. I'm, I'm I think I'm good because I haven't had a. I'll take my break during plain tales. Drink. So well, I'm on my uh, um, hazy IPA, little things. IPA. Hazy little Sierra thing. That's a great Nevada. IPA. Oh, that is a good Sierra yeah. Nevada. That was one of my Very Christmas nice. presents. Yeah, great beer. Oh, I actually tasty. have a few of those around right now, oh, I think. Mm-hmm. Wow. But according to um, the Carlos. The sour who, one is really good. Who came and stayed with you recently? It was Carlos, wasn't it? It was Carlos, said The yeah. place was absolutely stacked, floor, full of ceiling with beer. Wow, can't I... wait to visit. What's the point? Is there a problem? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, your point, and your point is? What? Well, yeah. doesn't, doesn't everyone have a beer fridge in every room in there? No. Just... <laughs> I think the most... 
impressive thing I've ever seen was Justice's uh, refrigerator. Oh yeah, you think my house is full of beer? No, his house is full. This house like beer. Me. It's full of beer that he's never even going to drink. I don't think it just is there. That's the sad part and the puzzling part. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, okay. well, enough enough beer talk. So it's Groundhog uh, Day. We're covering this item again. Okay, uh, so so uh, just to be sure that you don't feel like you are losing your mind or experiencing uh, Groundhog Day, um, you know, like the movie over and over and over again. Um, I made a mistake when I was editing the last show, and I was, you know, doing the show notes, and I'm thinking, what heck? I, I know we talked about this particular piece of feedback that we're going to do again. What happened to it? And I think there were some issues with my internet or actually with my, with my thumb hitting this button on the side of my mouse. And I kept taking myself out of the show and it was user error, of course. And, uh, I, uh, in the midst of trying to fix it in post, I ended up, uh, taking out this entire (laughs) piece of feedback and I did contact Jeffrey Brent, uh, the uh, MD and PhD in uh, Colorado, and said, "Hey, look, uh, if you're if you see the video, uh, you'll you'll hear us and see us covering your feedback. But if you listen to the audio only podcast, you're going to wonder why we we didn't cover it, and this is why because I screwed up. So I told him we're going to cover it again. So Here we go again. You, you aren't you aren't losing your minds, folks. We are." We are covering this again, and this is feedback from Jeffrey. Uh, he says, just for your information, you're, prob- you're probably aware of this, but just in case you're not, there is really an APG airline. And then uh, he gave us the link to this airline, and I think that is uh, Dr. Steph uh, correctly pointed out on the last episode, I think uh, she, along with Carlos and maybe even Armando, I, I don't remember at what point Armando joined the fray over there last week. But yeah, he joined uh, in the, and then um, contributed a little bit, and then he and his lovely bride sat on the couch and heckled, and then they left and went downstairs and yeah. drank beers. I think, yeah, very disgusting. Anyway, uh, you looked it up and found out it, this is a French airline and when i say airline i'm i'm being generous it's a, it's a very small little outfit that uh i'm not even sure if they do scheduled air service or this is more of a charter outfit but uh uh there's the uh, the tail of the king air and i believe you said it was a 350 uh stuff um I think apg so, yeah. airlines and uh anyway so uh as we said when we covered there's the interior of the King Air and the APG Airlines airplane. Yeah, have we? And, have uh, our lawyers sent them a cease and desist yet? I was just going to ask. Um, we just our hired that lawyer room. that won uh, the lawsuit. We just hired the lawyer. Oh, that oh, won we've the we've we've hired the lawyer that won that almost two million dollar lawsuit. <laughs> yes, can, I can buy my own caravan yes. now. It's a win. <laughs> yes, excellent. How many millions should we ask for? Four, <laughs> five, uh, at least. That's five. Yeah. Yeah. a million each. a piece. Yeah. Oh, okay. We're going for euros now. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. So, <laughs> sorry, I'm getting all choked up at the thought you, of winning a million dollars. Yeah. MD, PhD, distinguished clinical professor of medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and Colorado School of Public Health. Very accomplished person. Thank you for pointing that out. And as, as we said, our lawyer or lawyers, our team is on it. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Sue their pants off. Crack team. 
Yeah. Although I think that we pointed out when we covered this last is that uh, we fly for Acme Airlines, not APG Airlines. So maybe we'll let them off the hook. Mm. Uh, just this once. As uh, long as they don't, don't ask do us it again. to reimburse their type ratings. Yeah. That's, I think that's generous, Liz. She's saying we should only ask for half of what we were originally going to sue for. Good point. Okay. That's reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, this feedback from Stefan. Um, he's a small feedback regarding episode 499, uh, the uh, last topic of the show, flying in wildfire smoke. Back in the Gulf War One and the burning oil wells, Airbus and Boeing produced a procedure regarding crude oil smoke. Examples, uh, Boeing 747. Again, that's from Stefan. He sent us a link to this, and we're, there's the uh, uh, a link to a uh, F, uh, FCOM bulletin for the A310 regarding crude oil smoke. Anyway, smoke from crude oil fires can spread over a large area well beyond the source of a fire. Commonly, the smoke will form a thick layer of dense, dark cloud with a top of 5,000 to 10,000 feet. Smoke from crude oil fire is composed of oil particles, soot, and gases with a high sulfur content. And, you know, we were we were talking about the fact that, um, you know, you can, you can expect turbulence from uh, pyrocumulus clouds and other, you know, things caused by fires, whether they be a forest fire or crude oil fire or whatever kind of fire. But we, we weren't absolutely sure about what effect it would have on engines, especially engines of uh, reciprocating, you know, piston uh, powered engines or airplanes. And uh, the effects uh, part of this article says operation of engines and aircraft systems should not be immediately adversely affected by the smoke, but prolonged exposure will lead to airframe and systems contamination. And also one way to uh, a defense in this uh, situation is to monitor your engine parameters and note any report note and report any parameter shift to maintenance. And then uh, we'll put a link to this uh, A310 FCOM bulletin regarding crude oil smoke. So that's really the only information that we've been able to secure or find regarding uh, the effect of, of fire smoke um, on engines. Yeah, I didn't expect there to be a significant uh, effect, quite honestly, uh, even in quite dense smoke. Um, you're definitely not going to um, exclude enough oxygen to affect the engine. I, I wouldn't have thought. But then again, what do I know? I'm retired. I think that, well, you know, because you have a, a vast body of knowledge. Yeah, but I don't care anymore. Look at Carlos being a mean guy there. Whoops. Smoke from crude oil fires or from a bunch of P. Pratt and Whitney JT8Ds. JT8Ds. For all the coal. Hey, it's just all those B 52s flying over. Yeah. I love that Pratt and Whitney JT8D. Yeah. That's a good engine. I've been flying that darn engine for many, many years. What, the same one? Not anymore. The same one, yes. It's wow. putting out a lot of smoke. It's lasted a long uh, time. But I think that, you know, the the greatest risk, as we mentioned before when we covered this on in 499, is the the uh, restriction to visibility. I think that's probably the probably one of the most uh, the highest risk from fi- flying in smoke. Okay. Um, 
let's move on. We have a um, video or a link to a video that was sent in by Chris. This uh, Chris um, Cheatwood. 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 Oh, you know, we haven't heard from Chris Cheatwood in a while. Thank you, Chris. Um, it's a link to a YouTube video uh, from uh, what is his name? Swain Martin, I think. Uh, airline pilot attempts working the ramp, throwing bags plus more. And so I'm going to play just a little bit of this uh, without permission, of course. It's about time that an airline pilot tries working the ramp. It is about time. And there are pictures of said airline pilot working the ramp and throwing bags and oh no, not emptying the, the ramp uh, is chaotic. Planes and carts, bags and people moving everywhere. And to be honest, as an airline pilot, when I park at the gate, I don't really know what's going on below the wing because we've got a lot going on in the flight deck to prepare for our next flight. And we don't get to see the specific challenges that our ramp crews are facing here on the ground. What? He doesn't do walk-arounds? He doesn't know what's going <laughs> yeah, on. I was going to say. Oblivious. <laughs> Never, like, what? I you see have to it. fuel the airplane and, you know, <laughs> What is going on? What is that hose? Bags? <laughs> no idea. I don't want to know. It's fine. I'm just, I'm totally joking with this guy. Like, his his yeah. point was that they're busy and they're just not looking at all the details of what's happening all the time. Yeah. Right. Right. He made some good points. And it's it's interesting. It's educational. It's entertaining. Uh, we'll have a link it to is. the video in our show notes because uh, it's, and it's, it's quite, never a, a quite bad idea to know, too, you know, what um, the folks you're working with, 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 what their job entails, your support crew and, mm-hmm. and other things. So, Absolutely. In fact, this. part of our commander's course was to go and, and visit and work with every department on our airlines. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've got a vague idea of what goes on behind the scenes. Yep, and gives you good appreciation yep. for the challenges that they deal Absolutely. with. Absolutely, yep. All right, yes, uh, Swain. Um, again, I don't remember his last name. Is that right, Swain Martin? Um, anyway, well, just follow the link, and you'll see who this young man is. The chat room uh, has a lot of praise for his his videos, so um, yeah, a lot of good aviation knowledge going on there. Check him out. Yeah, absolutely. And he's got quite a following on YouTube. Mm. Uh, I think it's like 200, almost 250,000 subscribers. Oh, wow. Hey, folks, you got to get on the stick here. I mean, we don't have nearly that number. I didn't realize uh, there were that many people watching YouTube. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) All right. Um, 250,000 of them? Golly. Yeah. Am I reading that? Are you being sarcastic because I've <laughs> overinflated his yeah. subscriber no, 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 base? No, you carry on, Jeff. Because I, I could have sworn it said 245,000 subscribers, yeah, but that's right. yeah. I'm sure wrong. that's great. Won't be the first time. Anyway, thank you, Chris, for uh, sending us that uh, the link to that video. All right, continuing on, uh, Jeff, spelled the incorrect way uh, with a G, uh, sent this in to us. Just kidding. Of course, <laughs> I, I think that that's probably the the, the original. I way put them in the it. same category as people who who spell Steph with an F. So, yeah, yeah. or yeah, S T E F F. It's not F F, folks. It's P H. Okay. Like, well, anyway. Um, 
He says, this is not my first feedback, but it's the first that I hope is not a bunch of CFR mumbo jumbo. I do not know where or when I started listening, but I have enjoyed most of it. Wait a minute. Most of it? Why not all of it? Hmm. While it's hard to sit through the hours and hours of current shows, even at two times the speed boost, wow. (laughs) Try talking fast, you're getting really confused. Right. I've tried to go back and listen to previous shows. What a daunting task that is, but well worth it. Maybe by the time I retire, I will have, I will have listened to them all. I can't do it much longer than that. It definitely will not be before Jeff retires, as that is just right around the corner. Yeah. Well, at two times speed, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I've not been in the left or right seat of a GA aircraft since I soloed back in the very late 80s as a teenager. But it was fairly recently after listening to a few of your shows and some others, I was crippled by the APG disease syndrome under the guidance and encouragement of my son, who is blazing a path for his dear old dad. I decided to return to a more direct role in aviation and am on path to get both my AMP and pilot certification. Wow. Wants to be like Rick. Uh, I figured I would start with the A&P as it requires the more formidable task of 1900 hours plus of instruction as outlined in 14 CFR part 141.21 commercial pilots uh, only need as little as 1500. And I figured anyone could do that. So I would take the more difficult path first wink, wink. He adds, I'm currently attending a part 147 school and will soon be giving up my career as a travel agent to the U.S. military. Why? Well, as of this very date that I'm writing, I have completed two of the three phases as outlined in CFR part 65.71 through 65.95 of the program. I can now take my written test for the airframe part of the AMP airframe and power plant uh, certificate. I've enjoyed listening to your show so very much. Thank you for pointing me to the other shows like, uh, shall we even mention that one? Yeah, I guess. No, don't, don't. Oh, I think contractually we're okay. obligated to every once in a while. That's kind of vague. Yeah, it's been a while since we've the, the, mentioned it. Yeah. Oh, Opposing bases, OB, that are easier and quicker to consume, even at a <laughs> fraction of the listening speeds available Jeez. on my podcast app. <laughs> But seriously, congratulations on breaking past the 500 mark. Keep up the good work. And this again, Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, from Flight Team Aviation. That's awesome, Jeff. Uh, We're glad that we were here to uh, give you, inoculate you with the uh, syndrome. Uh, And uh, I think you infect him. Uh, You can get inoculations. But But they're not effective. Oh, nasty side effects. Uh, By the way. They don't work. So, <laughs> can, can someone? Uh, I'm I'm like a, a normal person. I don't know what CFR means. Uh, Code of Federal Regulations. Oh, thank you. Uh, for, from myself and the rest of the world. Thank you very much. Yes, you're welcome. It applies yes. only to those of us in the United States. The rest of you can forget it. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. True. Yeah, when we talk about Part 121, which is airline scheduled Those airline are all flying, parts and of Part 135 is all part of 14 CFR. Uh-uh. Yeah, uh, you just Code make of federal it reg- regulations. Yeah, you're right. We make well, it we up. do that too. Moving A lot up. of that we do. About 50 percent of it. <laughs> so you and Steph are just cowboys. Anywho, uh, thank you, Jeff, and uh, good luck, and keep us informed yep, as to your luck. progress. Yeah. Yep. Um, Don't forget Josh. to get that nice big set of hammers that you engineers need. 
There you go. Well, mechanics. They are mechanics in the States, aren't they? Uh, mechanics, yeah. Yeah, we usually mm-hmm. say mechanics. Yeah. Engineer is something slightly different. Yeah, he drives the train yeah. in America, doesn't he? Sometimes, yeah. That's true. Mm-hmm. And also people that do things, practical applications of science, I guess. Mm-hmm. Would that be yeah, a good way? That's to... a good way of putting it. The, okay. the, uh, I was going to say stuff. engineer things, but that's not super helpful. <laughs> <laughs> See what you did with that one. Uh Uh-huh. Well, you can't say people mechanic things. That doesn't really work the same way. Well, you can. You just just sound stupid doing it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And uh, leave it to me for saying the stupid thing stuff. Come on. Um, You know. uh, Anyway, I tried to let, like, give you an out on that one, but. Yeah, but that's okay. You doubled down on Uh, it, so. Fair I don't. I don't take myself too seriously. So, and uh, apparently nobody else does either. Anyway, uh, my name is Josh. No, my name's Jeff. But this guy that sent in this piece of feedback is Josh, and he's currently a high schooler in San Diego. Ever since I found your podcast a few months back, I've begun to seriously consider your mental health. No, seriously consider becoming a commercial pilot someday, perhaps a symptom of APG syndrome. Who knows? However, I also would love to help protect the environment a bit by becoming an engineer on aircraft Ooh, more engines. engineers there you go a mechanic on aircraft engines yes yeah? well but so you can you engineer know. you can be an engineer that designs aircraft engines but then if you're going to just work on them you'd be more of a mechanic yeah right english is like, not confusing at all don't worry no for those of you who are listening Especially to this American podcast English. in hopes of improving your english Forget it. that concludes today's lesson well, let me point out that in in <laughs> Thanks, britain uh, engineers work on aircraft and engines so you know it's perfectly <laughs> we've got three different countries that have uh, english as a main language represented here today so um yeah we're yeah. we're just all confused all of yes, the time we we're sad people Anyway, uh, I would also love to help protect the environment a bit by becoming an engineer on aircraft engines. So I was wondering if it's possible to become both. Yes. That is, be a part-time commercial pilot. Let me know. I'm not too clear on the number of required hours that a pilot has to fly every month slash year. I know somebody that might have the answer to that. Um, And somebody who happens to be a part-time commercial pilot. Right. And a doctor. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes, I that's true. But I think uh, he used the term commercial pilot, but commercial I think he's airline. referring to airline pilots. So we'll get both answers here in a moment. Stephen Ivy mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Stephen Ivy is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, for the new segment, I have some pieces to share. Seems like both Boeing and Airbus are having issues of their own with the A350 having severe paint issues and the 787 having serious manufacturing defects as well as the beloved 737 MAX having had its whole MCAS ordeal a while back. How come the big two OEMs are having such serious issues? I know both the planes incorporate groundbreaking technology, but it seems that with the A320, which was the first fly-by-wire aircraft that debuted all the way back in the 80s when computers were much weaker, never had any major issues. Or even consider the 747. The massive jet that debuted all the way back in the 70s never had any major issues with its design. <laughs> Just thought that was interesting. I was going to laugh about the Airbus one. Got that wrong, one. Josh. Nah. 
Uh, I'm well, just going to say, well, the engines kept falling off. That was one major issue they had. Uh, I'll just, just put, throw that one out there. You know, boom. I'm, I'm, I'm just looking it's at like the waveforms here because are you seriously overmodulated with your very <laughs> boisterous laughing? And I, was drop, I was dropping the mic. Boom. Yeah. Hmm. Sorry. Well, would that. you mind dropping it a little bit harder? Because <laughs> I can still hear you. All right. Um, let's continue with our feedback, please. Uh, last, congrats on the 500th episode. I wish the entire crew well. Have safe travels. Enjoy the joyful pushing people out of flying planes and have fun drinking IPAs. I don't think I should be saying that as a minor, though. Well, too bad. You already did, Josh. And we do appreciate the uh, the thought. And uh, when you get old enough and you enjoy drinking beer, possibly, uh, we'll, we'd love to share one with you and find out about what uh, what the future holds for you as Absolutely. far as piloting yeah. and engineering and all that jazz. So, Steph, what were you going to say about um, doing this uh, part-time commercial airline pilot and being an engineer on aircraft engines? Uh, I just I think it's entirely possible to do both things. Um, it's that's not easy, um, but I think you can work on all of your flight ratings and certificates and and that good stuff while you're in school. Still, you could even start now depending on how old you are josh i don't know if he told us what grade he's he just in. says he's in high school high school so yeah. um i mean you can start working on it now you know you can solo when you're 16 and then get your um private when you're 17 and keep working on ratings from there so never really too soon to start working on that um and in the meantime um especially if you're thinking about going the route of being a airline pilot um most major airlines still have that requirement for a four-year college degree so i would do something in engineering and then you can really work on dividing your time however it works best for you there's no right or wrong there um i do know of people we you know you mentioned Stephen ivy who has had a job flying um jets for a regional airline and also a job um outside of that um i can think of a few other folks that i've known from twitter and other places who have held two different careers sometimes teaching and flying and um, various other things so um, you know, in my case, um, I'm not an airline pilot. I have a commercial certificate, but I can use that um, on the weekends to fly for certain types of compensation. And I do that flying skydivers. So uh, during the week, I've got my my day job. And on the weekend, I consider the flying to be very much for my own um, um, personal mental health and sanity. But at the same time, it, it is, you know, for compensation and um, therefore um to different standards potentially than if you're just going out and and um you know flying safely for fun around the uh, poking some holes in the sky but um so you do have to you know be very um it, it's still a job right in, in both our jobs so um you have to take that into consideration in terms of how much time you want to spend on you know quote unquote work each week i would say because um, when you're taking on flying as a as a profession or as a job, there's time requirements, there's hour requirements, um, and you make a commitment to it a little bit differently than if it's just for hobby or, or fun. Very good. Uh, well, so, and I'd just no. like to raise my finger and go uh, the paint, paint issues. Uh, only one airline is really 
I had a big problem with those and uh, I think it's just a bit of cracking paint it's not really a major problem anyway. thank you to our Airbus apologist um, <laughs> yes well, only, only oh, one Davis. airline has rejected their aircraft because of it. A couple of uh, have had a few paint crack yeah. problems. I don't think if your paint cracks off, you're generally too worried about it. But there you go. Yeah, I don't think that's really a big issue uh, compared, you know, paint issues compared to serious manufacturing defects. <laughs> <which Yes. laughs> affect like yeah. be much more important. Anyway, uh, Laura Davis in our live audience says another youngin who's sadly fallen into the grips of the APG. Maybe the show should start with a warning for immature audiences only. Oh, <laughs> Laura. Oh, it's yes. true, though. Uh, you should definitely start with the warning. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, real quick That's for Jeff, though, true. I was trying to, there was something else I was trying to think of with um, mm -hmm. uh, Josh's feedback. Um, he was wondering about the required number of hours that a pilot has to fly. Um, does your airline have any requirement hmm. for number of hours? I, I obviously don't think my so. my flying work is very different. There's no set number of hours that are quote unquote required. And in not. in my experience, uh, Steph, uh, you normally have to be a full time. Uh, employee uh, until you've got to a certain stage and then in your career they might allow you to move to part-time uh, as my airline did uh, there aren't many airlines uh, proper airlines that will just employ uh, someone on a part-time basis uh, you might be able to get a job with a um, I don't know uh, on an exec jet or with a company who's got a few of its own aircraft and just needs a, a pilot every now and again uh, that might be the way to go, but that'll be a bit of a one-off job rather than a run of the you know usual run-of-the-mill airline job. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, I'm not sure. I I think perhaps that's slightly different here in the states. But as far as I know, I don't think that there's any requirement like from the FAA that says you have to you know to maintain your certificates or qualifications as an airline pilot you have to fly a certain number of hours i think mainly because our here in the u.s our pay is based on the number of hours we fly per month and so mm -hmm. to get a, a regular paycheck uh, we are motivated by that fact and uh, we we uh, fly a, a decent number of hours uh, it's probably also something that uh, your individual airline and the contract that it has, if it's represented by a union, has with the uh, the company. So I think there are a lot of different answers cut you for off that. Fast enough to say this, and I didn't want to, but I haul boxes also mm -hmm. um, brings up the qual you know, the qualifications aren't hours working for your company. It's your currency requirements, right? So yes. take off landings yeah, we are, every ninety days. Yes, that's requirement for, have for flying in general, but for work flying it's probably very company specific as both nick and jeff had said and, and you would think that if you're an airline pilot that getting three takeoffs and landings every 90 days is, would be a piece of cake and well it depends on what kind of airline flying you're doing on the uh, my airplane uh, i get three takeoffs and landings every time i go out on a trip at least uh, but uh, if you're an international long-haul pilot Sometimes that's difficult to get three takeoffs and landings every 90 days. And in fact, uh, I know uh, Nick can, and can talk about this, but uh, I know people that are flying international that uh, sometimes have to go into the simulator uh, to, to get that requirement taken care of just so that they don't, they don't become unqualified. 
That's exactly right, Jeff. And it, particularly early on in your career when you're a first officer doing ultra long haul, you may be one of three first officers on an aircraft. Um, the captain will get one landing, one of you will get the other landing, and that's your trip done. And if you do three of those a month, you may well not get a landing a month. Uh, so, yeah, it becomes a problem. Yeah, very different sometimes. I think just me alone, um, work-wise, my record is 20 takeoffs and landings in a day. Wow, did so you, you get any right? probably huh? don't need to worry about <laughs> did the get currency. Did you get any right? Uh, hopefully. <laughs> one or two in there. Maybe Couple. 50% if I was lucky. I'm not sure. Excellent, uh, excellent. Yeah. So yeah. Th that was three, 20 times you actually landed. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. That's a good yeah. job. I mean, yeah. 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 I think that's pretty. No, no. I mean, I used to do. I used to do that in the air force all the time. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, we'd launch off for an hour and a half mission. You'd come back with an extra ten minutes of fuel until you just pound the circuit and yeah. uh, until you ran out of fuel, basically. Oh. Uh, so we used to get lots and lots of hand flying, lots of. Well, our, our flights take about twenty minutes per round trip, so and they just get. Oh well, yeah, all you get a lot of landings. Yeah, yeah. A lot of landings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Two landings for every approach. Yes, yes, I haul boxes. Um, you know. Well, Thank I'm you for sure the feedback, Josh. Steph could manage three or four for each uh, uh, approach if she wanted. <laughs> if I wanted to, it's not very kind yeah. to the airplane. It's got to take a lot no. of those. Lot of those twatters, they could stand a bit of that. Eh, they're pretty robust. Yeah, caravan too, for that matter. Cool. Sorry about the latency. I guess we have a lot of latency today again. Um, so I, I seem to be talking over everybody, and I don't mean to. That's right. We're, we're not. Um, we're not listening, Jeff. I just updated. Okay, my Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. Um, next item is from Keith. Um, he said, "This is Keith from Little Rock. I just finished listening to episode 500. What an amazing accomplishment and awesome show! The memories were hilarious and tons of fun." I just gave a coffee fund donation, thank you, Keith, uh, to help replenish the cup after such a great event. In other news, I recently got started on my sport pilot's license, something that I've wanted to accomplish for a number of years, and listening to your show has given me the inspiration to get off my keister and get it done. Get her done. Here's the next 500. <laughs> That's great. Here's to the next 500. And thank you for all you do. Keith. Now, is that sport pilot's license an Australian license where you no. go, <laughs> where Sorry. you go, can I sport if you got a license? Uh, or not? <laughs> yes. No. Okay. I take back yeah. my no from before. Yes. <laughs> Could be, maybe. I don't know. Um, I don't. I, I just. Yeah. I don't genuinely know what a sport pilot's license is. Is that? Well, I mean, if you're a good sport here in the UK, I mean, people could make jokes and you would grin and laugh because you're a good sport. So is that is that the kind of pilot mm -hmm. you're talking about? Very similar. No. Oh no. <laughs> no. I, I don't know uh, what the requirements are, but there I'm are fewer requirements right now, than I a private license. All of them. Uh, so okay. Yeah. So. Uh. 
uh, da, 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 da. I just want to get the requirements correct because I won't remember sure. all of them off the top of my head. Are they head. special airplanes well, you have to fly? Yes. So it's, this is for flying specifically light sport aircraft. So Good. the definition of that per the FAA is um, has a maximum takeoff weight of not more than 1,320 pounds uh, for aircraft not That's, intended for water I, I weigh operation. that much. Mm. <laughs> no, you Sorry, don't. carry on. <laughs> Or not more than 1,430 pounds if the aircraft is intended for operation on water. Uh, maximum airspeed and level flight of mm, with maximum continuous power of not more than 120 knots. Um, maximum never exceed speed of not more than... Oh, that's for glider. No, 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 skip that one. Um, maximum stalling speed without the use of lift enhancing devices of not more than 45 knots. Uh, maximum seating capacity of not more than of no more than two persons, including the pilot. Single reciprocating engine, um, f- if powered. Fixed or adjustable uh, or ground adjustable propeller. A um, couple of other things in here which aren't uh, so non-pressurized cabin, fixed landing gear. Um, uh, instrument flying. Um, I don't think that instrument ratings are app are possible if someone's going to correct me on this if i'm wrong um but let me go through the the um requirements here that's not what i wanted i'm sorry all right okay well, just, uh, here's here's the here's the basics okay um minimum of 20 hours of flight instruction time is required with 15 hours um being with the FAA authorized instructors, five hours of solo flight, and two hours of cross-country flight um, are the minimum requirements to get your sport pilot's license. So it typically can be done in quite a bit less time than a private pilot certificate, but then you have a lot more restrictions on the type of aircraft you can fly and how many passengers you can carry with you, um, and and as we just kind of read through there. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Oh, no, I was just wondering if, that, a, if a, a sport aircraft was allowed to fly in cloud. That was really my question. I, no. Let me I don't think so. Um, you'd have to have okay. an instrument rating anyway, but I don't know that if you... You have um, to have an instrument rating, but you can't use it. <laughs> I would imagine that to get an instrument rating, okay. wouldn't you first have to have a private I'd, certificate? I'm pretty sure. At least? I just want to find the actual CFR on that. Yeah. Before I... Come on, people in the oh, live audience. CFRs. Help us. Oh, right. Okay. Well, it's very complicated. Yes. Uh, Laura Davis uh, says, aren't the medical requirements they less stringent, They are less too? stringent. You can do, um, so you can do a third class medical, or you can do the basic med, or you can, um, even before so, basic med, I believe you could just have a valid driver's license to get your medical for a sport mm-hmm. uh, pilot's license. You know, I've got a paper driver's license. We've got the gist. Paper? No. Yeah, it was. It was. It's okay. so old. It's made out of paper. Okay, Control here you go. A sport saying, pilot uh, may you not act. Boring the heck out of me. No, wait, move on. I'm going to answer. I'm going to answer. Next last question here. What? Sport pilot may, if you would stop laughing at me, um, <laughs> may not act as pilot in command of an aircraft. Um, when the flight or surface visibility is less than three statute miles, without visual reference to the surface. So no. <laughs> so, so no, you. So, what is no clouds. the answer to? You can't okay. Fly in okay. Thanks. Thanks. Thank <laughs> All right. 
That. Good job. Sorry, was. I haven't I haven't Good looked job, at the requirements Stephanie. for sport pilots certificate in a very long time. And Great if I knew we were there, going to talk Steph, about this, I would have had a more succinct. Jeff, you uh, can edit that whole middle bit and just include that fine. last sentence Steph said there. Fine. No, I'm leaving it all in so no, everybody can share the pain. Oh. Sorry, I'm not going to apologize for that. They asked me to answer questions that I wasn't ready to answer. You already. I just heard you apologize. Yeah. I did apologize. And anyway, I'm taking it back. Oh, you're, it's a take back. <laughs> oh. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, I don't think we've had so, one of those before on this show. <laughs> so, just quickly, uh, before we do uh, this week's plane Could tale, you sum I'd up like what to. You just said. <laughs> no, moving on. Sorry. No, 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 no. We're going to move on to smaller this aircraft, piece less of time, no clouds. Uh, Done. <laughs> Landon. Feel free. <laughs> oh, well, that wasn't. Did very you take nice. yourself out? Yeah, I well, did. Liz, better watch out. I'm just going to add oh, her Liz randomly did. at times. Liz took Liz <laughs> took her out. We didn't do it. Oh, so, it me. Excellent. Okay. Um, that was the control room. Um, Landon <laughs> sent this in. Uh, some audio feedback. So let's take a quick listen. Here we go. Take it away, Landon Harvey. Oh wait. Hang on, I got to read this. I got to set it up first. Uh, he says, "Tell me if you hear it." So listen closely, folks. Tell me if you hear this. Remarks. AO two C level pressure one five zero. Arrivals expect visual approach runway one eight right, one eight left. Simultaneous approaches in use. What this is determined. Taxiway Golf between Taxiway Bravo and Taxiway Golf to restricted to aircraft with wingspan less than 171 feet. Taxiway Hotel closed between Taxiway Bravo and Taxiway Golf 2. Advise on initial contact. You have information to Bad, Austin Bergstrom Airport. Bad. Oh yeah, that's an American 737 in the background, by the way, taking off. Alright, bye. <laughs> Actually, that was good. We liked hearing that airplane flying by there for takeoff. So, yeah. um, either of my co-hosts care to tell me what uh, Landon is trying to get us to hear? Uh, well, Steph, I can go, only, I can only hear an airplane <laughs> in the background. <laughs> I heard a little kind of a in the background. Twice, but I've no idea what, what someone was saying. No. The voice, the computer voice said, notices to airmen. Oh. Notices to oh, airmen. Oh, naughty. Then yes. they're supposed mm -hmm. to say something different. Uh, no, he said, didn't they get the memo? Yes. Didn't they get the memo? I guess this was recorded Notice. after it changed, because that's just very recent. Notices to air missions. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, in fact, today, going into Jackson, I believe, uh, listening to the uh, ATIS over the uh, frequency, uh, the computer voice, or maybe it was going into Dallas yesterday. Regardless, it said notices to air missions. Wow. A little, so they, a lot of places are, are up to speed on it, but apparently not in Austin, at least when Landon uh, recorded this the other day. So thanks, Landon. Well done. Do appreciate that. Good spot. And... Speaking of a good spot, uh, this is a good spot to uh, play our plane tale for this week. Mm -hmm. It's entitled, 
R, and I love these, RAF Form 14, 414, Volume 13. Take it away, old pilot. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales. RAF Form 414, Volume 13. I'm about halfway through my four-year sentence at RAF Valley instructing those RAF pilots destined for the fast jet world. The first couple of years had been far from without incident, and I should probably mention that I nearly lost my greatest friend to an accident, but someone was watching over him that day, and he survived. I was up in the Welsh mountains, taking a new course through combat survival training, and being beaten up every day by hawks endeavouring to take the tops off the trees home as souvenirs. Our training location was well known, and just about everyone in the low-flying area would come over at some point to say hello to the new students. Razor Gillett had just about blown us away with his slipstream when the radio crackled into life with the news that I should get down to the hospital in Bangor. Seeing my old friend, just out of theatre, with long plaster casts up to his hips and big steel pins sticking out of them at random like a drunk magician's swords stuck through a box was a bit of a shock. He stank of anaesthetic and ditch water, his front teeth broken and his face a mass of cuts from the ejection. But he was alive. It's very much his story to tell, so I'll leave it there, but I was never more grateful to see his crooked grin as he came around. By now I'd been back to Standard Squadron for an upgrade in instructor category from B1 to A2. This involved a tedious amount of study from a large pile of approved manuals and then a few weeks flying with the standards instructors to brush up on the nuances of instructional technique. A2s tended to be given the more advanced trips and students who needed a little extra help getting through the course, so getting a handle on the finer points of explaining how to hurtle through the air at a great rate of knots effectively was important. After a suitable amount of preparation, I was off to the hallowed halls of Central Flying School at RAF Leeming to get a laying on of hands by one of the godlike immortals that reside there on the thrones of gold in the examination wing. The laying on was more like a good slapping, but after using all four approved colours on the whiteboard, flying a check ride, and being probed in unspeakable places during the debrief, I was deemed suitable to join the ranks of A-grade instructors. I might note that the pinnacle of the instructor's tree was the grade A-1, which could only be achieved after crawling through a desert for many years, climbing enormous mountains to meditate, and then prostrating yourself in front of a pilot with mythical abilities of self-levitation. Indeed, at the time it was considered so monumentally hard, there wasn't a single A1 Hawk instructor in existence. 
months turned into years, and by the end of 1983, we were saying goodbye to one of our flight commanders, Glenn, who'd been loaned to us from the United States Air Force. He was a fine instructor, a great boss, and a passable darts player, an essential quality for the many days when the weather on the island of Anglesey was producing horizontal rain. I bet nobody knows the METAR code for that. The weather could be so notoriously bad that the station news magazine was titled Force 8. Having made sure that our students were suitably engaged in studying, we would retire to the instructor's crew room, drink coffee and play darts. Glenn would often win, purely by employing the stomach-churning habit known only to Americans of a certain ilk by stuffing his cheeks with red man-chewing tobacco and then spitting the vile brown effluent noisily into a Coke can. Glenn was going home after his tour of duty. He had made many good friends and was well-loved, such that when tragedy struck his young family and he was offered an immediate return, he declined, wishing, he said, to remain and mourn amongst the many friends, comrades and companions that he'd made at Valley. When he did leave, we gave him a great send-off, and at the conclusion of his last formal dinner, we unfurled a vast flag of the United States that we had hidden in the lofty ceiling over his head. In the rolls of material we had stuffed piles of confetti, so he was suitably covered in our love. In the bar afterwards, sipping on pints of beer, Glenn handed me a bar chit, normally used to write our drinks orders on. When I unfolded it, I read that I had been nominated as his successor, and he was handing over the reins. In reality, all it really meant was my own office, in which to write the copious reports needed on each and every student and instructor. It also meant trying to keep the courses ticking along so that our newly minted pilots could graduate on time. Hiccups in training progress were considered an anathema to our lords and masters. I also had the difficult task of interviewing our charges when things weren't going well, trying to nurse them through the tough times and, sadly, giving them the bad news if, despite everyone's best efforts, things just didn't work out. I had my fair share of those talks, but perhaps surprisingly, there were few tantrums or arguments. Most knew that they'd reached the extent of their ability and fully accepted it. Some didn't realise their own limitations, which was often the point, and made it difficult for them to accept. But if they couldn't reach the standard required here, how would they manage doing the same thing in a large battle formation carrying weapons whilst being attacked by other aircraft? To make it worse, there were few other opportunities for them within the service, so it often meant the end of their career in the Air Force. When the realisation hit home, there were emotions felt on both sides of the desk. Very sad. At other times, a student's visit to the flight commander's office was cause for nervousness, 
I dealt with reports of over-exuberance in the mess, etc., very promptly, knowing that the punishment I gave my boys would be mild in comparison with that dealt out by others. If I got there first, it was hard for grumbling senior officers to punish a student a second time for the same offence. So I implored them to tell me first and give me a chance to fend off complaints with the big umbrella I kept solely for that job. At other times it might be some guidance to mould the young men who would one day be joining a frontline squadron. A tall, beefy, curly-haired student who was a good pilot, indeed a very good pilot, often let his mouth run away with him. He was never one to hide his light under a bushel. Whilst his friends put up with his self-satisfaction, it rubbed many others up the wrong way. An invitation for a cosy chat in my office, where he wasn't invited to sit down, resulted in me setting him straight. The advice I passed on wasn't original. I had heard it before. It ended with these sage words, "'Keep your mouth shut,' and let your flying talk for you. Many years later, a British Airways pilot strode purposefully towards me in a bar in Narita. I immediately recognised the big stature and curly hair, and my heart sank. Was this payback time? Not at all, apparently. It seems that I had done some good, and we enjoyed quite a few beers together. As the years progressed, I took a pilot navigation instructor's course, so now I could help those who, like me a few years before, had been having difficulty mastering the art of navigation. This was followed by a Master Green instrument rating, the first time I had reached the dizzy heights needed to not just pass a rating, but excel at it. And before long, I had yet more hands laid on, to become an instrument rating examiner. This certainly didn't guarantee a pass when I had to re-qualify for my personal instrument rating. Next year, my old friend John sat in the back while I performed the usual raft of instrument flying exercises in the front. An instrument departure, a Chinese weave of speed, heading and height changes, which culminated in a series of recoveries from unusual positions, all done on instruments. Then a practice diversion to fly an approach at a different airfield. I think we popped over to RAF Aldergrove in Northern Ireland, elevation 190 feet where I missed the call to reset my altimeter from Q&H to QFE and flew an ILS down to a 200-foot decision height on the wrong setting. Such events are often a reminder that we're all human and it doesn't matter how many qualifications and accolades you receive, mistakes can and do happen. When I looked up from the gauges and peered from beneath the hood attached to my flying helmet, instead of seeing a smallish runway from 200 feet, I saw a vast one 10 feet away. Needless to say, that was a fail, and I had to do a retest, but John was kind enough to remark that he was impressed I had managed to keep the ILS needle centred right down to the runway. However, it's often the small things in life that will kill you. Christmas came and went, 
and I was at home throughout. The training system shuts down for such periods, and I entered the new year with just over one more year to go before I could escape back to the front line. I was flying less with students now and more with my fellow instructors doing skills assessments and the like. And more often or not, when I got to fly with a student, it was for a check ride or test. These were regular events through a course and had to be passed before moving on to the next phase. For me, they were less enjoyable than regular instruction. Blogs in the front was usually on edge, knowing this was an important assessment, so most of my time was spent putting them at ease so they could perform at their best. I never really got my hands on the controls much, unless something had gone badly wrong. Then came a surprise, when Chris, my boss, was put in charge of Standard Squadron, and asked if I wanted to come upstairs to join him. This would mean flying almost exclusively with instructors, training and coaching them when they came in for their regular check rides or upgrades. It meant much less fun, as let's be realistic, nobody likes being checked. But I knew my boss and enjoyed working under him, so was happy to take this change of role. The job was harder, as standards instructors couldn't afford to let things slip, or they'd lose what little credibility they had. A lot of our time was spent in classes, covering all the subjects that instructors had to keep up to speed on. Metrology, aerodynamics, aeromed, theory of flight, regulations, and the myriad of other books, documents, maps, instrument plates, and such. Before too long, some of the incumbents had left, and I was asked to step up as the flight commander standards. In standards, we more or less had free reign on what we could do, and it started being fun to fly with grown-up pilots who knew their staff. We frequently took our hawks up to remote spots where, in addition to doing a couple of training sorties, we could combine a night stop or just pick up some fresh fish and Dublin Bay prawns from places like the remote RAF Macrahanish Air Base on the west coast of Scotland. Life was good, and I only had a few months to go before I would, hopefully, be posted back to somewhere more exciting when the boss dropped a small bombshell on my quiet existence. I have mentioned the hallowed instructor's A1 qualification, and it appeared that the higher-ups had finally noticed the distinct lack of such godlike creatures in the hawk world. The word had come down from on high that we should all be encouraged to reach up towards this mythical and ethereal world in the chance that we might achieve greatness. As the memo mentioned, becoming an A1 instructor wasn't impossible. One merely had to be exceptional. So when Phil, a devilishly handsome ex-Red Arrows instructor from the CFS Hawk outfit, announced that he was going to try, my boss mentioned in passing that he would like me to coach him through the preparation. So began the unnerving task of working one-to-one with Phil to cover all the ground needed before his grilling at the hands of the Central Flying School examination wing. A month or two later, off he went. To return three days later, 
the examination was no simple matter, with a gleaming new halo formating neatly over his golden locks. Good job, said the boss, but then it occurred to him that I'd done at least as much work as Phil towards his A1. Why don't you have a go yourself? Which is how it happened that three years and eleven months after I left the Phantom Force, I hopped into Hawk T1XX231 and set off to Central Flying School to be put through the ringer. Sadly, my memory is selective, and I can only now remember the bad bits. At some point during a four-hour oral examination, as I stood before a whiteboard giving explanation after explanation, armed only with four marker pens, I stumbled over an equation. I needed to show how the inertial and aerodynamic forces balance in a steady erect spin to the right for an aircraft with a B over A ratio greater than 1 and normally functioning controls. I think it was around the bit where the inertial moment in pitch equals force P applied to C precessed by R is pro spin at B. Therefore, IM equals bracket C minus A brackets PR. When I faltered and dried up, this was only one of nine equations I needed to explain. I got a look of sympathy and we moved on. Later, in an auditorium in front of the entire CFS staff, I got through the lecture I had to give and then prepared for the final day, the flying tests. Two hours and ten minutes of airborne time later, and I was back on the ground. A debrief, a shake of the hand, and I climbed back into my aircraft for the 30-minute flight back to base, the latest A1 QFI in the Royal Air Force, and entitled to the post-nominal CFS star. Apparently, my spinning fluff had been forgiven. I was also to become the laziest A1 in the existence of the RAF, as my flight home was the very last time I would ever fly as a Hawk instructor. As luck would have it, my time was up and I was done with Valley. The next time I would get airborne would be back in the Phantom full time. But that, as they say, is another story. Hey, Nick, in my book, you've always been A1. <laughs> Thank you very much. In the UK, it's just a road heading up to Scotland. I was going to say, it's not as good as oh. 1A, but we'll let PTU can't. Or no, A1A. Exactly right. Oh. Yes, quite right, too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that was a, an interesting four years, particularly since um, very few of us had ever volunteered to become flying instructors. We were all just told to go and do the job. Uh, and I look back at it now as um, a, a period that settled uh, my uh, spirit down and gave me an awful lot of uh, grounding in the theories of uh, what we did in the air. So actually, I'm, I was very grateful I got that chance. And we're grateful to hear all about it. <laughs> yes, we are. I was, uh, I was getting my my head was starting to hurt when I was looking at that page in your 
in your uh, yeah i i uh, was reviewing notebook. it actually and trying to uh, remember how we used to chalk and talk it all the time uh and hmm. uh you know it was so easy just to a little bit of uh an error there and you'd forget uh how an equation went you come out with the wrong result and go uh, <laughs> uh, i'm glad we oh, didn't have to do that good. stuff and when as I was an and when I was an instructor in pilot training, well, I, I think your system was probably a lot better. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, a lot more people make it through, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it's quite quite. Anyway, that was another enjoyable one. I really do enjoy the uh, uh, logbook, uh, the RAF Form Fourteen. They well, are the my favorites. Whatever. Yes, the other yeah. the right. other stories are good too, but I like the personal ones. I like learning mm -hmm. more about. <laughs> well, Inside I'm back interviews. in Phantom uh, yes. for a while uh, okay. next time, and then yeah. off to I'm another sorry. instructor's course. Oh, God. I'm certain you were very disappointed. I'm sure you'll reflect upon uh, leaving Valley uh, for the yes. F4. <laughs> yes. I, I must admit, I, I actually got the letter from the Commandant of Central Flying School congratulating me on passing. Uh, was forwarded up to me at Lucas. I was already back on the phantom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. Bad timing. There you go. Yeah, love it. Okay. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Uh, let's continue with uh, some more feedback. What do you think? Absolutely. Let's do this from Lars. And uh, he has something to say, and he recorded it. Let's hear it. Hi guys, that's from Norway again. Um, I thought I'd give some um, quick feedback on your uh, news section from episode uh, 501. Uh, especially the two articles regarding um, the uh, Russian plane with the um, icing problem. And secondly, the um, uh, go-around uh, case uh, up in uh, Aberdeen, Scotland. Uh, first, uh, the de-ice uh, thing you mentioned, um, or at least you discussed um, how one would um, potentially discover residual uh, ice after performing, performing um, uh, the anti-icing procedure. Uh, before I became um, a professional pilot, I used to work as a ground handler for a, a regional airline in Norway. Uh, one of my duties uh, was in fact to perform uh, de-icing um, and I'm not saying this is the uh, this is the way uh, with every airline or procedure uh, everywhere but at least the way um, this particular airline chose to divide the responsibility was to have the um, uh, the ground crew uh, perform what's known as a post anti-ice uh, check um, where um, I, be I believe Rick was uh, touching the subject, but it's very formalized over here. So after every uh, de-icing and anti-icing, um, me as, uh, as a de-icer um, would be required to, to do a visual check uh, of the airplane as a whole uh, to make sure that no, no part of the airplane is contaminated by snow or ice. Um, as well as do a um, uh, hands-on check on the uh, critical surfaces, such as the um, 
stabilizer and uh, wings. Uh, the hands-on check uh, can be um, can be um, excluded if the uh, if the DI's procedure is performed with the engines running. But uh, as we used an open basket solution, uh, all of the uh, uh, all of the procedures were performed with uh, at least one engine uh, turned off. Uh, but we we strictly adhere to what's known as the um, zero contamination uh, principle, which uh, basically means that uh, regardless of what the uh, pilots order in terms of uh, uh, de-icing, uh, we will never release an airplane with contamination on the fuselage, um, even though they, the, the pilots only ordered uh, a wing and stabilizer uh, de-icing. Um, so that's at least how it's done over, over in, in the um, uh, top the European part of the world. Um, secondly, the the other news article um, about the, uh, the go around um, in Aberdeen with the seven three seven or the Boeing challenges uh, with the um, with the automation uh, not being possible to. To disengage once you have localizer and, and um, glide slope uh, locked. Um, I thought your discussion was pretty interesting, but I, I'd like to um, I'd like to uh, ask f- first. First, I'd like to ask you guys a question, and you may pause the the, the sound clip just to discuss it a bit. But um, one thing that I learned during my flight training. Uh, in terms of, of uh, go-around procedures, uh, what is the primary goal of a go-around? My, um, my instructor at the time, um, bo- uh, he boiled it down really, uh, really nicely for me because the, the entire procedure, like from the initial approach fix uh, down to the um, uh, final approach fix and missed approach point, and all the way through the missed approach procedure, it's it's designed so that you can uh, go around from the worst possible location, which would be the missed approach point, um, in a manner which is safe uh, in terms of uh, terrain separation and, and uh, the general procedure design. But the the aim of the go around itself, the the, the primary goal to achieve is not to to climb as quickly as possible, but to stop descending. And um, and I found that to be quite um, a nice way of, of um, uh, interpreting the go-around procedures because it, to me at least, it, it really adds a, a whole new layer of, of, uh, uh, of calmness to the procedure because it, it can be really stressful um, having to to press toga and add thrust, uh, get your flaps up, make sure that you're tracking the correct um, the correct uh, both uh, climb path and lateral path. But if you if if you just um, um, do it bit by bit, like first you just you want to stop the descent, 
and accept that the level segment could be flown and then get your your power flaps everything done and then uh, go into a climb and then get your gear up to, to me at least that um, increases the the level of uh, success or, or um, uh, chance of, of executing a successful go around uh, dramatically especially those immediate uh, or sorry intermediate um, go arounds because they every time you practice a go around in a simulator it's it's done uh, at minimums so you will you will in fact need that um, that uh, increased powers just so you can climb away uh, and everything is kind of happening all at once so yeah that's just my my two cents um Congratulations on passing the 500. Uh, looking forward to the 600 show. Uh, I'll do my very best to attend attend that show. And uh, uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you all. Best of luck from Norway. See you. Thanks, Lars, uh, from Norway. Uh, he said uh, he had a few thoughts on a couple of news articles from 501, and he discussed those and asked the uh, questions uh, very uh, Clearly, and um, yeah, I guess I was supposed to pause at that point in the in the uh, feedback, but I thought now I'm just going to let the whole thing run out, and we can uh, answer his question about well, you know what is the purpose of a go around. And uh, I think his flight instructor, um, you know, had a very good point about the fact that you know it's it's not necessarily you know getting the noise the no the noise the no, nose pointed up into the air and you know climbing like a bat out of hell to get away from the ground i mean that can be uh one of the purposes of it if as you mentioned uh you execute the go around procedure right at the worst or last possible moment the missed approach point in your instrument approach but uh you know just arresting the descent you know stopping the descent is an interesting way to kind of think about uh, yeah well if you i mean another way to think about it um he's talking about it in the context of flying an instrument approach here um do a lot of go arounds in perfectly clear visual condition days and because of a lot of different reasons you know it's it's usually for something someone um that is still in my way um either on the approach path or on the runway still that i need to avoid so the purpose is to avoid colliding with that thing or object and maintain good safe separation from others basically so it's it's not always about as you said climbing away from the the runway at the last possible moment a uh, couple of points. Um, there are, in the United States, go-rounds are generally directed by air traffic. Um, that's not true in many other places in the world. So for me, uh, entering uh, a go-round meant not just the physical action of making sure you've got safe separation from the ground, accelerating the aircraft and cleaning up, but it also entered a new phase of navigation because some go-rounds... Uh, required extremely accurate flying. You were well below local terrain uh, and had to ad adhere to a lot of height constraints and turns that had needed to be flown accurately to prevent yourself from uh, putting yourself in a dangerous position. So to me, it was a whole phase of flying. Um, and certainly just leveling off might, uh, in most circumstances, is a great idea. But 
you try doing that at LA where the go around altitude is 2,003 feet, they send you around from 2,500 feet. You've got to go down to 2,000 feet to level off. So you go under the visual flight corridor that's over the end of the runway that you're about to otherwise blow through. So you've really got to be aware of your surroundings and the situation you're in. So, um, yeah, I, I agree in in most of everything you said, Lars, but there's, of course, always the exception where you really have to be on top of what's about to happen. And quite often... At the end of a really long trip, you know, the weather looks great. Everything looks absolutely tickety-boo. You can never see a good reason for going around. That's when often it happens. And because you're not mentally prepared for it, because you're kind of going, oh, God, we'll be on the ground. You're, mentally, you're already on the bus having a beer on the way to the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> That's the moment that it happens and you get caught out and everything goes to worms because you really weren't thinking about what the situation that could occur just any moment now. Uh, you'd be lulled in that full sense of security. So for me, it's just staying on top of the airplane, staying ahead of the airplane, being on the ball whenever you can, and, um, you know, try just trying to be a good captain. Uh, that's really what it comes down to. And constantly be thinking about, okay, you know, what am I going to do if this happens at this point? And, but, you know, complacency is a, is a hard thing to shake sometimes, right? You know, you're just, you always come in and land, right? Always. Well, oh, absolutely. Not always. <laughs> it just feels like. <laughs> well, I think it's the, always. It, it, it's just being aware of what the situation is calling for, right? So um, just try and stay present, stay in the moment. Think about what the, you know, you can think about the what ifs. I don't think you have to be thinking about the what ifs all the time. You know, that's probably not constructive either, but um, those things should go through your head sometimes and you should be aware of what the conditions you're in require. Yeah. A good balance. I think yeah. any, any pilot needs good balance in everything that they do, you know, whether it's be drinking, climbing stairs, um, you know, <laughs> going over that tightrope. Good balance. Very important. Well, I, yes. Good balance. I haul boxes um, says that the primary goals of a go around to go crash somewhere else with less fuel. Yeah, I, that. I, was, hmm. I saw that. I, I yelled a quiet chuckle. Yeah, <laughs> very yeah. Good. I laughed. Very Neil good also indeed. Has an observation there. Oh, Neil thinks that maybe it's for more flight hours for the pilot. That's what he thinks. Wow, well, go arounds are for. Yeah. yeah, but in reality, I I worked it out. I did one, about one every five years. So you know, you don't. It's not like you get heaps of practice with the, out of the simulator. Um, you know, it's right. pretty rare. Rare, but I thought I did think it was quite interesting a few years back at my outfit that uh, they started kind of considering and thinking about and putting us through the uh, uh, the situations where you're not at the decision height or the missed approach point in a non-precision approach. You're, as you mentioned, you're above the missed approach altitude or you're or you're way out on the approach and they tell you to to call off the approach and go around and, and, and think about, okay, is it really necessary that we go to toga power and put the nose up, you know, 15, 20 degrees and, and go screaming through the air and scaring the, you know what, out of the passengers in the back? Yeah, maybe not. Let's think about the situation that we're in at the moment. But as you say, the moments that you're really thinking about and maybe even rebriefing go around procedures is when you're 
in a situation with like a low visible visibility approach or whatever, and you're thinking there's a really a possibility here that we're not going to be able to see the runway and land. And so you're, you're kind of ready for it. So, and that's, that's not the situation that catches you off guard. It's the situation, Perfect. as you mentioned, where you're already halfway to the hotel in the van or thinking about that beer or whatever <laughs> yeah. that it, it what he's telling me to do what? Go around. I can't land. What? <laughs> and then all hell yep. breaks loose in the cockpit. Absolutely. Yeah. Jeff, I'm wondering if you Good want point. to do Ray's feedback now, number 13, just to make sure we get okay, to it. Okay, I'm getting Okay, sorry. Control room is uh, speaking with me right now. I think that's a great idea, Liz. Uh, but before we do that, uh, let's, let's not overlook the first part of Lars' audio f- feedback. You talked about the de-icing, uh, specifically about the Russian... Um, icing slash de-icing. I guess the Russian icing, it was supposed to be completely de-icing, but it, they didn't quite do the the full trick with the, the ice on the fuselage. And I thought that was a really interesting uh, experience related, um, you know, sharing with us uh, regarding de-icing and, and, and the fact that even if the pilots asked for just the wings and the tail, because I do that a lot. Um, and, and, it, and a lot of times it's, you know, the only thing that's on the fuselage is what we call hoarfrost or very light coating of, of, of frost on the, on the upper fuselage. And, you know, we have some parameters that we're you know, required to uh, follow regarding that. But a lot of times it's just not anything that's going to like a piece of it's not going to break off and be ingested into an engine. It's just frost. It's not going to do anything. But uh, I thought it was interesting what he said there, that even if the pilots had asked just for the wings and the tail, that they make sure that at least in his experience in that area of the world, um, that uh, they make sure that the entire airplane is completely uh, free of winter uh, contaminants. (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was good too, uh, because, uh, you know, that makes the, the point that he has a license as well to ensure that the aircraft is safe to fly, as well as the captain. And uh, to me, is the highest degree of safety that is the trump card. And if his, uh, I've got to clean the whole airplane, is safer than what the captain has requested, he's going to clean the whole airplane, which I think is a great attitude. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again, Lars, from Norway. One of these days, I like to get up to that neck, your neck of the woods, and check it out. Ah, it's a beautiful country. Give me a call. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, don't forget to take plenty of money. <laughs> All right. Not I'll a do not that. a cheap part of the world. Well, the beer and uh, uh, everything alcoholic is very expensive. Oh, well, I'll just let Mark. I just pay bring for my own all. beer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Might work. There we go. Problem solved. Problem solved. solved. There's a solution for everything, isn't there, Steph? Absolutely. All right. Hey, Ray Williams, my neighbor to the north in Alpharetta, actually to the south now in Alpharetta, (laughs) sent in some feedback. He says, here's some audio feedback from the last few shows. Sorry, the mic seems to have picked up the fan noise from the desktop PC. Ah, well, feel the width. All the best for... Okay, I'm going to... I'm just going to go right past that. All the best for 2022. Regards, Ray Williams, Alpharetta, Georgia. So let's listen to Ray's audio feedback. Hi, Captain Jeff and all the rest of the APG crew. Um, Captain Nick, Captain Rick, Dr. Steph, and of course, Liz Piper. 
Congrats on reaching your 500th episode, Jeff. It uh, is a real tribute to the dedication and the planning that you've put in over all the years that this has gone so far. Uh, it's a huge tribute to the work that you and the rest of the team put into the production. And the 500th episode was great. Kudos to the myriad folk who helped and contributed uh, to that marvelous show. I've got a few things to chat about today. In 501, uh, you folk were talking about go-rounds. Rick uh, mentioned the thump of the extra power and the 2,000 feet a minute climb when you hit the toga button. Uh, so a couple of months ago, we had to go to Europe, took the hometown airline to Amsterdam, and then a KLM 737 down to Zurich. As we turned left onto final for 14 at Zurich, I could see the approach lights in the distance. It was a clear day. We kind of look kind of high, but then generally they always look high to me, uh, to my inexperienced eyes. So it was a clear day, as I said, and I was watching the countryside go past on the left, looking for the spotters at Spotters Hill. And then I noticed a change in the attitude, a little bit of nose up and gentle pressure on my back. And I said to my wife, we're going around. And I said, this is going to be fun because... My previous experience of a go-round had been at Dallas-Fort Worth once in an MD-88. I was right up on the front of economy, on row 10, whatever it is, the first, line, the first row of the economy seating, way forward of the wings. And it was a gusty day, and the 88 was lurching around, and uh, they couldn't get onto the approach, and we started the go-around. Well, somebody said that the MD nickname of Mad Dog came from what the 88s do when you hit the toga button. As I said, I was so far in front of the wing, the nose going up and then coupled with a huge push as the power increased. And we were just going straight up. I reckon it was going to be a couple of minutes and I'd be looking downwards at angels. Anyway, nothing like that happened on the KL 737. A gentle acceleration, slight, calm, slight climb. And the flight attendant comes on and says, we're aborting. No excitement. Uh, back on the downwind, the captain comes on and says we were too high on the approach. And so then when we landed and we were coming off the runway past the windsock, and I noticed that we'd had a fair tailwind component on the, on the landing. So I thought maybe the tailwind had kind of messed up with their approach plan and got them too high too late. So the captain didn't come out to uh, say cheers to us when we left. And I was going to ask him if that was the case. But my son says, oh, you know, maybe the king of Holland was flying the plane because he would sometimes fly the KL-737s. And sure enough, I mean, our uh, go-around had just the regal calmness of a king. But I seem to remember that uh, the king stopped flying the KLM planes around about five, six years back. I think he just reached that age. So, another thing in 501, you all were talking about the DC-3 wheels-up landing in Anchorage. And Nick happened to mention that the DC-3 wheels protruded. And Rick thought there was a mechanism for aligning the prop to minimize prop damage in the case of a belly landing. Well, Nick is correct. But this crash was not a DC-3. You got it right uh, when you started to introduce the the... Uh, item and you said it's a DC-3S uh, that's a super deck uh, amongst other changes the longer fuselage 
and uh, the really cool DC-7 like fin and rudder uh, and different wings. The Super has the wheels enclosed within wheel well doors. So it kind of looks maybe cool, but uh, anyway, so they, they weren't protruding. Now, the protruding wheels of the original DC-3 were pretty neat. In Len Morgan's book, The Douglas DC-3, there is a copy of the actual flight handbook issued to pilots during World War II. And in this handbook appears the following. When you make a belly landing, either on an airfield or on rough terrain, remember this point. Your landing gear extends approximately a foot when retracted. Not only does it take the greater part of the shock of a belly landing, but you can use the wheels and brakes as you would if the gear were extended. Because of this fact, you never actually make a belly landing. So the brakes and everything work when the in a belly landing. Um, so, um, but as I say, in this case, it was uh, super DAC and uh, they were enclosed. Uh, as to Rick's remark about lining the props, I don't think the one foot clearance um, would enable the <coughs> prop blades. I think they're, I don't know, five and a half, six feet long to avoid hitting the ground. Even like when the, the, the one blade is straight up and the other two are at angles down. I think, you know, they're going to be about four and a half feet uh, on the vertical. So, And I can't find any mention about prop positioning to minimize damage in any of the DC-3 docks I have. I've got pilot's notes and things like that and books on it. and I don't see anything. And then talking about the DAC is a good segue into my one gentle gripe. I thought APG was about aeroplanes. Well, in episode 499, we get to this topic of a 340 flight to Antarctica. Five hours from Cape Town. Wow. But I bet it took over an hour for the 340 to get to a height where the water from a spouting whale wouldn't drench the cockpit windows. Anyway, back to the video. We see it land and get photographed. Big, white, 19-year-old aeroplane on a totally white airport. Okay, seen that. And I wait, and I wait, and wait for what is really interesting in the video. In the background of this plane is a DAC, and nobody says anything about it. So it's probably one of the Ken Borek, um, Ken Borek Air BT-67 Basler turbo-converted uh, DACs. I think they use them to fly rich folk to the South Pole. Uh, some 19-year-old jet just doesn't quite stack up to a 77-year-old veteran. And you all seemed surprised that the A340 landed on runway 175. Well, the 10-degree grouping of runway numbers, I believe, is to handle the vagaries of magnetic variation. In the extreme south and in the extreme north, the runways are designated by true bearings, not magnetic. And hence, I guess they can be more finely defined. So 175 is fine for a, a true course runway. Anyway, the South Pole flight, sightseeing flights are ideal for the DC-3s. Uh, they head down and uh, then enter a right-hand circuit of the South Pole, continuous eastbound flight. And on each circuit, they cross the international dateline and the aircraft becomes a day younger. 
Anyway, enough chat. Compliments of the season to the APG crew and all the APGers throughout the world. A special shout-out to those in the Southern Hemisphere enjoying the holidays with long, warm days outdoors and by the pool. I'm being nostalgic. <laughs> Cheers, folk. Take care. Stay safe. Get vaccinated. Well, that's Ray uh, Williams, our... Um I don't former, I guess, originally from South Africa. I guess I don't know if he still has that citizenship or not. Um, maybe dual citizenship. But, uh, you know, I noticed in that video, by the way, um, of the 340 landing in Antarctica, uh, I noticed that DC-3 or whatever it was, uh, a conversion uh, in the background. But I just, I just didn't mention it. I didn't. I didn't know I was going to disappoint you, Ray, for not mentioning it. <laughs> you didn't know all the legions of the DC uh, three uh, or no uh, fanatics out there were just going to be, yeah, yeah, heels about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure the very first time a DC three landed Ant in Antarctica, they had uh, <laughs> who would have been Pathé News in those days would have made a big thing of it. And uh, I think that's the only reason the 340 made a big thing. It was the first time a yeah. 340 had been in yeah. there. Um, I can't remember which version it was. Was it a 300 or a 600? 300. It was a, it was 300. a 300. Okay, well, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll reserve comment on the rate of climb uh, <laughs> remark. You <laughs> You'll have to agree with them on that. I have well, no recollection it, of, the, of the runway heading. I must have missed that part of the conversation. Yeah, we I talked about 175. That. It was kind of weird, but, uh, you know. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. wave the bullshit flag there because uh, you don't need to <laughs> be able to <laughs> measure your runway heading quite so accurately. Although I suspect if it was an ice runway, it might not have been quite so easy to uh, find the edges. So uh, making sure that you had the runway exact runway heading bugged so that as you touched down, you could... Uh, use your compass as an extra reference to make sure you weren't going to drift off into deep snow. Might have been. But we, we even even uh, even up here in you know non Arctic Antarctic areas, we still put in the exact. Even though we're landing on runway three four, if the heading is three thirty seven, that's what we have in our heading yeah, select you window. Yeah, access to that you know, anyway. Yeah. What is that? The yeah. QDM. But, the Q the QDM isn't that the Q code for the rum? I might be I might be wrong, but it's I been a while do now. Not have any idea what you're talking about. I've never heard that before. Uh, um, you never set up QDM. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to now look up QDM. Well, I'm sure it's I'll a be thing. Back. Okay, okay, bye. Um, all right, bye. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, I think that. Um, that was interesting about the uh, the wheels protruding um, the foot and the fact that it's really never a, a true belly landing, right? Because the mm -hmm. wheels are going to touch first and you can actually use braking with them. I, I've not, <laughs> never heard of that. I have oh, it. No. Okay. The yes. QDM is the magnetic heading uh, or a magnetic bearing. So if you want the exact magnetic heading of a runway, it's the QDM. Oh yeah. So you say the QDM of the runway is, <laughs> and then the answer would and be, and the and what? the person you're flying with would look at you like you have three no, eyeballs because they're because they're all English. <laughs> uh -huh. Oh, no, they're not actually. Okay. Most of them are like French, and they go, "Huh, QDM? Who cares?" <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> okay. Well, if I thought we were going to manage to get through an entire show without, no, uh, you know, I'm offended. If you're offended, remember Edgy I'm offended at airlinepilotguide.com. There you go. We won't we'll read it, happy but to send we'll that be happy to, to collect HR your department. Yes. Cool. Yeah. We'll laugh at directly it. to the We're, trash. You, you <laughs> Just straight into the shredder. Seven minutes left. Jeff, do you want to wrap it up or do you want to do more sleeping? Uh, let me do one more, Liz. Um, I think uh, number 14 would be fun to do, kind mm-hmm. of a little sure. a light way to kind of. And oh, by the way, Ray, thanks for that great audio. Um, very, uh, very interesting information and, and uh, uh, look forward to hearing more from you in the future. So here we go. Last one here on uh, show 503 is from Texas Charlie. He said, this one's just for you, Captain Jeff. Uh, All right, I'll leave. Your deep l- well, wait, he's, he means everybody. I oh, think. okay. Sorry. Uh, knowing your deep love for the media. And their professional level of knowledge and care regarding the reporting of aviation-related stories. This one's for you. And here is a graphic that he sent along with his his uh, feedback, and we're displaying it on the video right now. And uh, it says, "Type of aircraft found in 1,000 news articles chosen at random over the last 72 hours." And it's a pie graph. And uh, so the biggest piece of the pie is uh represents the from what i can tell maybe it's a tie with uh there are a couple of them are pretty big pieces uh are the boeing 737 max 800 and the second or the closest one uh just like it or the uh, represents about the same a boeing 747 max 8 i don't (laughs) think there is a there's a dash so uh, yeah, so uh, we're looking back here now. Let's let's start off with the top category: Boeing seven thirty seven RJ one seventy fives. I flew on one of those um, recently. I think popular. Yeah. Were you? Yeah. Oh, that exact model. Um, mm-hmm. It's okay. kind of rare, as okay. you can tell That's by the graph. It doesn't. It you know, is appear in many news articles. No. Uh, how about this one? The Boeing seven eighty seven RG Megajet. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I'm actually personally uh, a fan of the Mcboeing Doug Bus 737. <laughs> that is the best. <laughs> the McBoeing yeah. Doug Bus uh, 737. Definitely my favorite. Of course, and you know the, the Max. Uh, yeah. The Max the, the, Series 8 is is in the news a lot, of course. Uh, but this I haven't heard much about the Airbus model, <laughs> the Airbus Max Series 8. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, I like the Cessna one. So it's the 737 Cherokee. It's a um, weird that's hybrid. A, uh, that's kind a of real odd looking. Worry, <laughs> yeah. That one. I think I've seen a few of those seven, the Cessna 737 uh, Cherokees uh, out there, actually. Um, the the Boeing bus Miami NC-17. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand that one. <laughs> I think Miami Rick needs Miami to explain Rick, that yeah. one to us. Yeah. The Boeing bus Miami Rick, maybe. Mm, that would be a good mm, one. Mm, mm. The Boeing 343XP. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, oh, I like or, the 787 course, Max 8 RG as opposed yeah, to the non retractable gear uh, 787. <laughs> yeah. How about the Boeing 737 Maximus? Maximus. <laughs> <laughs> in all uh, caps, for added the, emphasis, I suppose. Yes. Uh, yeah. Lots of emphasis. Anyway. Charles Prince, uh, otherwise known as Texas Charlie, says, keep smiling. It messes with their heads. 
Texas Charlie. <laughs> Excellent. Good job. Yeah, they mm-hmm. wonder, wonder if you're just happy or you're just crazy or both. Yep. All right. McBoeing Douglas. All right. That, that All right. uh, That's brings us to the end of episode 503, the last wow. live recording in the year 2021. And uh, yeah, so I guess we should now tell you that we have a website. It's called AirlinePilotGuy.com. Even says so right there in the video. Thank you for putting that up there, Liz. And uh, the site is full of all kinds of, uh, Captain Nick's even pointing to it. There you go. I, I mean, how can you miss it now? Yeah. Uh, you can learn it's more like about the crew and the community. <laughs> Liz is concerned you might be experiencing a, a stroke. A stroke. Or yeah, Are so I was okay, having Nick? a little stroke yeah, <laughs> okay. with my other hand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hmm. All right. Uh, let me keep going here. Uh, the crew, yeah, yeah. the community, we have a calendar there. We have information about the plane tail. Why you'd want to know more, I don't know, but Neither it's there. I. I put a couple well, out today. Thank you for oh, excellent. preparing excellent. those. Oh, sure, yeah. I'm just sorry it took so long for me to finally get it to the point where you could uh, put your finishing touches on them, um, yeah. so to speak. Um, and uh, let's say we have the APG library, if you're into reading these things called books. Um, information about the the merchandise yeah you can get your APG merch and um, so much more Uh, just head over to airlinepilotguide.com and uh, we're also on social media and uh, the lovely doctor is going to tell us more about that Mm-hmm. If you are on social media like we are, you can head over to Twitter um, on your mobile device or your computer, whatever you prefer. We are at APG Crew, and our individual Twitter handles are pinned to the top of that page, should you wish to seek those out. We're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. And gosh, I haven't done it in a long time, but perhaps I'll make a New Year's resolution to actually repost Captain Nick's wonderful artwork on our Instagram, where we are also APG Too Crew. late. I've stopped doing it now. Oh, well. Uh, I'll figure out something different to do with our Instagram never mind. then. And with that, <laughs> I'll turn you over to Hillel. Um, Hillel, let's see if he's here in Jackson. And uh, Okay, hang on. I think I hear some. Hey, Hillel, do you, you have time to do Slack? Okay, but I'm dripping wet. That's okay. Come on over here and tell us all about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Hey, thanks, Hillel. Where's the soap? In the soap Yes, it does, doesn't it? I'll order some more and send it to Jeff's place for you. I don't know why he's used yeah. it all already. It's weird. I don't know. I don't know. And you'd think a hotel room, you know, would have plenty of soap, but sometimes you'd be wrong. All right. Well, with that, um, it's now time to thank our producer director in Great. Toronto. Well done, thank you. Good job with thank you, for all the hard work. 
Appreciate that. And I can't wait to see you tomorrow. Looking forward to it. And with oh, uh, with that, I thought I'd fixed that. Apparently not. <laughs> oh, hi, Liz. There she is. Yeah. She's, she's joined us. Where have you been all this time? <laughs> I don't know. Just goofing around. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I uh, look forward to seeing you tomorrow, Liz, and Absolutely. celebrating the end of this year and the and the new one coming up. And Yes, let's uh, say that uh, wishing you clear skies and limited visibility and a great and happy, prosperous, safe, rewarding, good year. God bless. Cheers, y'all. Happy 2022. And I'll just end with Nick Boeing, Doug Bus. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, I got I fly